when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's December 12th, 2022, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 530. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and it is the dawn of the final day of the Waypoint holiday sale. Have you gotten yours? Well, if you're listening to this right, like immediately, as soon as the episode drops, you can probably still make it. Uh, Kato, when, 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 are we, when are we sealing the vault? Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern today, if you're listening to this the day it came out, December 13th, right? That's the wow. date. It's yeah. possible if you, if, you, if you dithered, if you dallied, you might arrive at waypointplus.com and find... The gates have been shut in your face, for which I'm very sorry, but we had the sale running for a week. But if you are in time, <laughs> you can use the code WAYHOLIDAY to get 25% off your annual order. Now, to reiterate, this sale's a little unusual, unorthodox from what you might have been led to expect or what you're accustomed to. The way this sale works is if you're an existing annual subscriber... If you enter the discount code, you are not charged immediately. Instead, that discount this that discount code is saved like a little like a little squirrel's walnut for later when auto renew hits, and then you'll get the discount applied to your charge. However, if you're like I want to extend my membership right now, I want to pay Waypoint money, and I want to see number go up. I want to see that I am a paid member up through 2024. Well, you can do that. You can go to the uh, purchase a gift option on waypointplus.com and gift yourself your subscription, at which point it will be applied to your existing subscription and it will extend out and you'll be charged immediately. Uh, People have have used both methods and, and both appear to work. So that is that is the solution to all this confusion. Uh, that 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 racked the first week of the Waypoint holiday sale. But there's no confusion here. Uh, I am joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klepek. Hello. And Renata Price. Howdy. So we uh, have a, another interview show uh, for you today. I think if everything goes according to plan uh, after this opening segment, you'll hear me chatting with... Uh, Matthew Stoller, who is a uh, like policy wonk with the American Economic Liberties uh, Institute, and also an antitrust uh, specialist who follows monopolies and antitrust policy pretty extensively, and was uh, one of the few people in policy land to sort of tune into the uh, Microsoft Activision merger 
pretty much from the jump. So we'll be talking to him uh, and and hearing what he has to say about the framework that this merger is operating in and how the FTC uh, is challenging it. But first, uh, lots of other things have been happening as as well. Uh, so I see here, uh, Ren, that you have been playing entirely too much Dwarf Fortress. Uh, I've played what I would describe as an obscene amount of Dwarf Fortress. Um, what I would describe as kind of a kind of a repugnant amount of Dwarf Fortress. The uh, now almost twenty year old passion project by the. Um, Oh god, the Adams brothers, right? That's the last name, both Adams. Um uh to effectively simulate uh as much of a world as humanly possible. Um that has finally just released on Steam and is absolutely tremendous. I am I'm I'm really dwarfing it up. So I'm I'm curious. Yeah. Uh what are the most what were your biggest oh dear, I did not see that error coming uh what what have been what have been your most uh egregious failures as a dwarf manager uh what have been those surprising casualties that you've seen inflicted well one of them did come uh in the in the minutes preceding this podcast when i was like i need to pull up my dwarves so i can tell people what my what my dwarves whole vibe is and i was like why do i have 1208 food stockpile and only 93 drinks what happened there why do I have 925 other food? And that happened because what are the I, numbers you should be? What is the range you should be working with when you're when you're feeding a dwarf hold? Generally, you want a two to one food ratio. Uh, sorry, two to one drink to food ratio. Um, so you want okay. like 600 drink, 300 food, for example. But uh, I have a 47 dwarf population. Um, and turns out that there is a little option uh, to, to automate checking to see if we have enough food. Uh, and if this if the condition is satisfied, uh, I thought that they wouldn't make the food. Uh, it's actually the inverse. If the condition is satisfied, they do make the food. So huh. when I said, if we have at least 47 prepared meals, don't I thought I was saying don't make any meals. That's not what I said at all. <laughs> so we had a bunch of cooks cooking meals 24 7 around the fucking clock now you may be thinking to yourself renata um are you fucked a little bit but i also have possibly the best and most accomplished cooks in all of dwarfdom now <laughs> because I, I now constantly get notification that my chefs are making masterpieces and masterworks because i accidentally had them make uh let me just check here oh yeah 925 prepared meals uh, and the amount of experience they've gained from making all of those meals has been uh, tremendous. See, this is OK. So basically mm. you open you reopened El Bulli, uh, but like in a in a dwarf hold yeah. and just everyone went sicko mode on yeah. like dwarf oak cuisine. Uh, so hang on. I'm, I'm a little bit. So in terms of the the conditional thing, like yeah. I would have also understood that. I would set a threshold. And if we dip below this threshold, we've got to so, top back up. So here's the thing. This game wants you to make explicit if then statements. So, for example, Hell yeah. I have you can apply like eight, like four, five conditions to the same work order. So you can be like, hey, okay. only make this if we have enough of this and don't have enough of this. Okay. Uh, and so like all of that condition juggling um so does the food keep forever 
like have you just like sort of front loaded all your food production or like have you just depleted tons of we'll see raw food stock okay <laughs> we'll see the problem yeah. is that it used a lot of plants and the problem the thing is that i need plants to make alcohol and all dwarves need alcohol yeah uh, including including dwarven children dwarven youths um to, to give you some insight into the interiority of my of, of one of my dwarves right now we had a negative one-year-old child um who doesn't have a father um which uh, there were a lot of there were a lot this of the future conservatives want well actually yeah, there was a lot of, not having a father part <laughs> there was a lot of strange flags with this kid being negative one years old um and uh, the negative one-year-old child loved to just haul gems around. Uh, this just sounds loved- like dwarf shit, though. That's not unusual. Yeah, it's a little kid who's negative one years old uh, who loves carrying around handfuls of loose gems. Uh, and to give you some insight into her um, interiority, uh, she just thought to herself, it really gets me down sometimes. Uh, and also didn't feel anything after seeing a troglodyte's dead body. Nor a crundle's dead body. She has a very developed sense of empathy. So says her character sheet. <laughs> Do you think this character is just glitched? Do you think something weird's going yeah. on? No, I think th- I think this is just a fucked up weird little kid. I, yeah. I think that this is a this is just a weird child. Will they Apparently wink out of existence if they age forward it from age negative one to one for to so, zero? No, because I, I I have looked this up. Apparently, migrant dwarves can have their birthdays set in the future got it okay (laughs) so what happened was she was part of the first wave of migration about two dwarf years ago Uh, but the way it generates people outside your dwarf hold got messed up and so gave me a negative one-year-old child now the fun thing is that uh based on the bug reports that i was reading uh they also have negative size in proportion to how negative their age is and so another player had a negative 288 year old dwarf uh who was extremely extremely small uh because creatures grow in size as they age and so they just had like a little louse door like a, a little louse a little a little tick of a dwarf running the, around i'm a little guy portlandia sketch do you remember the little guy from portlandia i don't all right. Well, it was very amusing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me That's tell you, it's, it's laid in the room. Okay. I'm alone with my dog and my wife, and she has her, her earbuds in, but still, uh, I think it killed. So anyway, um, so you got a weird little kid. Yeah. But like uh, the vibe doesn't seem ominous. No, 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 no. The child, the child is 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 mostly fine. We did have another child who I believe made a masterwork a little bit ago. That was pretty interesting. Um, but in terms of great mistakes I've had, um, this is my second big attempt at a fort. Um, yeah. The first attempt ended when my dwarves learned the value and importance of a well trained and maintained militia. Uh, they learned that by being confronted by a well-trained and maintained necromancer militia uh, who did uh, kill all 17 of them kind of in one fell swoop. Jesus. Yeah. Um, which was not ideal. And so on this run, I have I have gone in with with explicit. I have an explicit plan for my dwarven military, which is now broken into four branches 
uh, each branch uh, has a different function in the fortress, uh, both militarily and also uh, every branch has a specific trade associated with it. So if you join that branch of the Dwarven military, uh, then you are taught that specific trade. Um, because I didn't want it to be, I wanted that theming, but I didn't want to have it so that like all of my miners are going to be out of commission when they're military training. And so okay, instead, so you're doing like, Dwarf Fortress Starship Troopers. No, I would not call it Dwarf Fortress Starship Troopers. Oh, I know. I'm sure you are loath to call it that. I'm sure you are loath to call it that. I would say it's distinctly less fashy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. That, that's you, the thing that all you know. <laughs> that's something just, a fascist would say. <laughs> you've just organized your society around military preparedness to mm-hmm. fight underground wars. Well, to be fair, the necromancers did attack us first, the, the, and and I only have one squad. I only have one squad so far, which is the mining corps. Um, because they were the ones who I wanted to train first. Because here's the thing: not many people are talking about this. A pickaxe can really fuck a guy up. Y'all heard, <laughs> y'all heard, of, y'all heard of a pickaxe? One of those can really fuck a guy up. Um, and so I have uh, trained an entire division to exclusively dual wield pickaxes, uh, and their job is to explore the underground caverns beneath the fortress, um, uh, and to like defend from underground threats. While the rangers, uh, who do all the wood cutting and, and herbalist work, uh, protect us from the outside. They're our first line of defense. And then the mechanics, forge smiths, uh, forge smith, mechanic smiths, uh, and forge operators um, build all of the traps uh, and also train with hammers. Um, and then finally, the craft dwarves um, are trained for close quarters combat because they're the last line of defense. Simple, kid shit, easy. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it sounds like a, a, a great society. Uh, everyone has a trade, and then everyone's prepared to throw down. At a moment's notice to fight to the, fight to the death. Here's the thing. Which, but to be like fair, that. the undoing of dwarf societies is they were insufficiently prepared to throw down at a moment's notice. Like the story <laughs> of, you know, canonically, this is what happens to dwarves is they're like, ah, another beautiful day in our dwarf hold. Time to fashion uh, artisanal trinkets and enjoy our hoarded wealth. And then something bad shows up. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. They are they are they are well prepared for the terrible things that happen in this video game. Um, so far, there haven't been too many extreme freaks. We've had we've had some folks go on several day crafting benders where they just have to make a legendary artifact, um, and they have since become extremely are good. We, are we just talking? Are you are you talking about a dwarf fortress or Rob Zachney? Look, hyper focus is a feature, <laughs> not a bug. Sometimes it's a bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rob has Rob has um, dwarf vibes. I think that's. Fair. I like to think so. Yeah. Are these, yeah. Co- are these cookies going to be legendary though? Are the things that you craft always <laughs> legendary? Well, I don't live for like five hundred years, so probably not. Like, um, <laughs> you know, my my cookies are my my cookies are fair. They're they're people will eat them. Oh, I was gonna say. I mean, if you know what you're doing, you can you can become a master of something real quick. Um, well, that wait, the, oh, that's a you sk- hop, skip, and jumped over. If you know what you're doing, <laughs> if you just master it immediately, you could just do things. Yeah, <laughs> it's, Rob. Like, it's just wild that more people don't just yeah, just master well, things. It, 
it kind of sounds like Dwarf Fortress totally embraces the uh, Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand dollar bull ten thousand mm-hmm. hour bullshit. Yes, where it's like if a dwarf just gets real like locked in on something, that dwarf's just going to get awesome at it. As opposed to what happens to a lot of us, which is like I'm going to get really locked in on a creative project, and then you like work on a ton, you fall asleep, you show it to someone, they're like, "This is dog shit." what were you doing? And you're like, I hadn't slept for three days, but in, in dwarf town that works. What friends of yours are, are, are responding to your creative endeavors and telling you that they were shit. Uh, have you ever been in a creative writing program, Patrick? <laughs> Let me tell you, that is just, that's just how they roll. Um, but yeah, like I am, I'm so excited about all these stories in Dwarf Fortress, I, I do think at this point it is, it sounds like it has come down to the level of like approachability that that I've needed. Yeah. Rob, you you would, I think you would really thrive with the current the current state of Dwarf Fortress. Uh, um, <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> dwarf Fortress. Uh, I was checking on, like I said, I was, uh, like I said earlier, I was checking on my dwarf. Just a normal uh, way get, of saying the, the, the game name Dwarf Fortress. Just to, a very extremely wait, normal way on. to talk. Do we have? Do we have an update from your dwarf hold? Yeah, I, we do have a slight update because I was checking to see some thoughts to see if there were any like specific, uh, you know, messages from the from the dwarf hold that I could that I could return to my to my friends. To my we colleagues. cannot get out drums drums in the deep. So, uh, we did, so, about two minutes before the recording started, we did find a deep pit that took us from one layer of Evil Cavern uh, down to the second layer of Evil Cavern, and I was just curious. Megan, mm-hmm. are you sure, like, do you hit things where you're like, this cavern is not normal, this is not normal like cave structure, this is like, this is bad? Uh, how would you rate an elk bird? On that scale. I, I'm sorry. This is a phone connection. I thought you said elk bird. <laughs> yeah. 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 An elk bird. A portmanteau yeah. of elk. The antlered giant. Yeah. And bird. Yeah. 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 Our mm-hmm. avian friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can give you a description. I, I don't. Yeah. I think. Please. A large creature found grazing on mushrooms deep underground. It walks on two legs and has the head of a bird with the antlers of a great elk. <laughs> she is almost never sick and mighty, but she is flimsy and quick to tire. She has incredible muscles over a small build. Her feathers are brown, her skin is copper, her eyes are black. Ah, ah. This is not evil, she sounds great. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I don't think she's evil. Well, we'll see. She Okay, she hasn't attacked my dwarf so far. Um, but you are in her lair. I'm in a lot of things lair right now. T- okay. Technically, I'm at the depth where what is colloquially referred to in Dwarf Fortress as a forgotten beast uh, could show up at quite literally uh, okay. any moment. And a forgotten beast are kind of like the end game bosses of Dwarf Fortress. Um, we're talking like a Balrog situation, right? Like that's the, we're ta- that's the thing that everyone is forgot. A great it was example. Down yeah. <laughs> yes. A Balrog is a perfect, because like some of these beasts are in fact... Uh, made of just smoke, like the Balrog. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, it, it's something for Patrick too. <laughs> um, down, down, down in the deep depths uh, beneath our fortress, um, where let's be honest, I shouldn't be. I should not have sent these people down here. 
Um, but this I is, assume this is, also like your quest for resources and also there's higher, there's more valuable shit the deeper you go. Probably. I mean, like the thing is that we, my, my economy is incredible. Rob, I, I made it a thriving dwarven economy pretty much immediately after showing up. Um, because we showed up with, um, arguably the best gem cutters alive. Mm. Um, the world's best living gem cutters. Um, and so I am able to produce extremely valuable gems on just on mass. Yeah. Um, I'll bet where that gets out though. Oh yeah. No, eventually things are going to get real bad for me. Yeah. Um, without a doubt. Um, but all the dwarves die in the jewelry store. Hold up. Exactly. Exactly. It'll be the, uh, it'll be like the, the, the end of, uh, uncut gems, meets uh fellowship of the ring uh, oh hell yeah which, i just discovered which, which a magma awesome. pool so yeah uh it sounds like things are going going apace in dwarf fortress uh i'm i'm looking forward to lots more check-ins down the road and and hopefully i will be bringing some things uh to the table as well as Please. as i begin my own quest uh to become a dwarven lord uh patrick what what quests have you been pursuing i just want to just to put a pin on it dwarf fortress has strong demon souls energy for rob in that if rob was still making top 10 lists i think rob could play dwarf fortress for like exactly five hours, five hours and then yep. and then say this is the game of the year <laughs> yeah oh I, that's my favorite thing to do on game of the year lists <laughs> look you know it, I'll, be, I'll be like dave wasserman you know i'll just be like, i've seen enough i'm calling it <laughs> We don't need we don't need to like the count is the count like we don't need to know what the final score is uh, but we do know where this is gonna we do know where this is gonna end up. Uh, uh yeah, I've, I've been bouncing around a little bit. I uh, I'm gonna uh, punt on saying too much about Forspoken. I want to spend a little more time with the demo that came out. It's actually a meteor demo than I anticipated it being when I loaded it up last night. Um, but I I will the, the very little I can say about it right now is I'm uh. Akata wasn't kidding when they mentioned it has a very unique combat system. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll dig into that more later. But uh, if you want to check it out yourself, there is a demo available on the PlayStation Store. Um, if you want to see, they're going, they're going for something different. I will, I will, I will say that. And whether that is good or bad will require a little more uh, a time. But we'll, we'll check in later this week. Um, I, I started Signalis um, as an attempt to, uh, uh, as as Kato put it in a podcast description, uh, very clearly a game that is a uh, strong candidate for Patrick's, t- you know, twenty twenty two game of the year that was played in twenty twenty three. Seems unlikely. I'm going to be able to finish it between now and I have until Thursday night. Like Thursday, night, I am doing a top ten list. I'm writing one out. Uh, uh, I, I have until Thursday night to do that. Um, cause that's when I'm going to write it so I can be done by Friday. So I don't know if Signalis will make it on there or not, but uh, I will say I certainly see everything that people are impressed by in the, uh, opening like two, two and a half hours that I've played. The thing that I was, uh, not as I wasn't ready for was, uh, the, the game's really smart and interesting ways that it switches perspectives between, the overhead and the first person. Um, it's really effective and interesting. Um, and uh, it does it in very key sort of story moments. And then also just, hey, it'd be cooler to be in an elevator in first person than in third person, wouldn't it? It's like, yeah, 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 it would be actually. Because <laughs> um, uh, the game just really understands uh, trying to make its world feel tactile. 
um, in, in a way that I was not really expecting. Um, and that those first person sequences where uh, rather than just hitting a button to interact with the thing, you are like getting into a mode where you feel like you're a little more connected to the space around you. So uh, it seems extremely cool, extremely weird. I liked it in the first 10 minutes. It asked me, do you want to go in a hole? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. I do want to go in this hole. Thank you for giving me a prompt. Uh, I like games that give, and this is definitely a uh, a hallmark of the Silent Hill slash Resident Evil style of, of horror game, which is to read out an obviously awful thing that you should do could or could not do and to turn it into a text prompt that you have to agree to. And I, I like the fact that over and over this happens in uh, Signalis uh, where uh, would you like to go in the hole? There's no other option. You can't not go in the hole. That's 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 just what's in front of you. Uh, and yet uh, I like that I have to uh, click the A button and uh, send my character uh, into into the hole. Uh, so I'll report back on that when I've, I've had more, but I, I'm not sure I'll have any insight beyond just echoing uh, the the fact that uh, Cotton Run were very high in the game, and I suspect I will be uh, as well. Um, and then the I weirdly found myself uh, on Saturday with uh, several hours without any of my family. They were cooking cookies um, at a at a family event. Uh, I offered baking. to, yeah, uh, I I offered to go, and I was told no. You're not invited. I was like, okay, well then I'm going to sit on this couch and I'm going to pick up my Steam Deck. And I managed to finish uh, Immortality, uh, which I started nice. uh, a couple of days back. Um, I will say, did not see where that story was going. Um, <laughs> not what I expected. Uh, I mean that in a good way. Um, I mean that in a, like a genuinely surprising, like if you'd given me a top 10 list of what are the resolutions of immortality not here not on this not on this <laughs> list not um you know i think so some of the issues i was running into kata when we talked about it uh last week in which yeah. uh because of the game's desire to have the player discover things on their own um you can run into things quickly or it can take a long time right. and i started hitting you know, the the novelty of having these three movies of clips to sort through was starting to wear thin before I finally hit a an aha moment, you know, that I that I alluded to on the last podcast where sort of a meta narrative starts to become clear uh, and then it changes how you are even looking at the clips in the game and what you're doing with them. Um, and then that's really interesting for another two hours. But then I hit a moment where, okay, like, does this end? Um, This could be a game that doesn't have an ending. It is just you're piecing together clips. Um, It is not clear to the player. Like, when you start, it's not clear. Why are we doing this? What is the goal? When more storytelling becomes apparent, it is also not clear why are we doing this? What is the goal? I mean, it's to discover what happened, I suppose. But I... I was struggling with at a certain point. I I hadn't seen all the clips from all three movies, but I seen a lot of them, and I didn't feel the need to see any more. I didn't f- I like the 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 thrust of those individual narratives in those movies. Um, like isn't wasn't enough for me on their own to like gotta see this detective like in in another behind the scenes clip. Um, I was like I, I want to see how. Once the meta narrative became aware, I was like, okay, I want to see how this wraps up. Um, and so I hit another kind of 
frustrating moment where I sort of had to look up, not the solution, but sort of like, um, how do I even get to where I'm going? Which was, well, I don't want to say what it was, um, uh, but there, you know, there was essentially a way to juice the algorithm to hopefully point you in the direction of some things that you're looking for. And when I got that, it was great. And I really enjoyed how it ended. Um, but I, I, I was, I was definitely looking for just a little bit of breadcrumbing along the way. Um, when I got a little lost, my guess is for other people, they'd be very happy that there was absolutely no pointing you in a, in a direction. And that is going to fully click for you. But as someone that when they start to feel stupid, uh, I like, I just wanted to be able to click like some sort of vague hint of like, Hey, have you thought about this? Um, and I think like, especially after having playing return to monkey Island, uh, a game entirely built around exploration and puzzles that has one of like pr- probably the best hint system I've interacted with in a video game, um, that made me, allowed me to keep moving in a direction yeah. without ever feeling as though it had spoiled, um, the solutions. You still got to earn that. Um, like immortality ended up being something I was like really special and interesting. I just wish I'd had like a, a little less friction uh, on the way there. But like I said, my guess is there'll be a lot of people that look at that and go, that was the point for me. Um, and it'll be satisfying all on their own. I think part of it's because the randomness means you can achieve a certain thing a lot faster than others. And I just didn't. Um, and that's where it suddenly became like, do I have to click on the candle? Is the candle important? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, and that's that's a bit where my friction came from. But the UI of the year, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. And definitely a strong candidate for, I think, of the kind of game that if you have people in your life that don't play games, seems like the kind of thing that you could sit down over the holiday. And it would be like a really fun collaborative effort to yeah. kind of uh, 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 edge them along. Like, there are very few games that I play and I'm high on that go... Well, I need to show this to my wife. She doesn't really play games. And this was the kind of one where I was like, gee, I wonder what she would think of this because it's so novel and different and approachable in a completely different way um, that it makes me wonder how people who don't traditionally play video games uh, might receive it. So highly, highly recommend. Um, uh, nice job. Played so much of it. I am. I am just curious, though, because we just had the game awards mm-hmm. and like I certainly felt that Mono Gage did a like plays a lot of different characters within characters and like to me it's a really special performance in yeah. games uh and so i am curious but now i don't have the frame of reference for god of war i am i am curious in terms of like performance uh like does did you come out come up with a, like a an opinion in terms of like uh you know if, we're, if you were if you were voting that category uh where would you cast your vote i understand how uh people arrive at christopher judge and the portrayal of Kratos, which I think is very good, but yeah. that is swept up in like a really emotional heart, like stringing story about like a father and a son um, and about mortality. Like it's a little more straightforward, right? Like I understand, like it sort of like hits the notes uh, that you can understand why people would be affected by it. Whereas the performance in immortality is a singular performance, right? Like, yeah. Once you have the totality of the experience in front of you and you have a better appreciation for what this actor was doing in these different moments, which is not necessarily you aren't you can't really take that in fully until the credits have rolled. And and especially once you've 
spends a lot of time in like that third film, which like you spend so much time in the first yeah. and second movie. And then I almost felt like I had to dig to find the clips I wanted to see were from the third film because there were like so many it interesting is so things going funny. on there. So this just as an aside, it is so funny hearing you talk about some of this because like my experience was completely different. I like ended up seeing so much of the second and third film early. Wow. And then the first film was like a black box. Like I had a table read <laughs> and I had the party. And for the longest time, like that was it that I had from that first film. And so I had tons of stuff from uh, two of everything. And then I could not, I was like, but what the fuck movie did they shoot? I couldn't find it. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, until, I, wow. I could not, I was like, I was done with that first. It was like, I'm done with the monk. Like, take me, like, <laughs> yeah. let's go to the, the pop star story. Um, And so I, I'm, I'm curious how much of that is, because I think there's an act of randomness to clicking on faces of actors. I think right and, from the start, it, it tiles out so many different things, too. And I think it, it really does put you at a different end of the maze. Yes. Um, and then also, if you, you know, you're clicking on the what do you call it? The thing that people clasp on a movie set. The um, yeah, the uh, clapper or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Uh, like that. Yeah. yeah like that's present. It also, um, you know, gets you zips you around. But yeah, that's I think that's interesting because in some ways probably reflective of player choices and player interest and what they are are finding uh, interesting. But also is just I think speaks to the the randomized nature of the story that. I'm glad, like, I think it was smart. I think they went in the right uh, direction, but I also think it can lead to exactly what I ran into is like, okay, well, the roll of the dice also means that you may not run into the clips that you want or need if you are seeking the, you know, resolution. Um, And uh, yeah, no, I, I, the the third story was, uh, yeah, that was the one where I was, I kept, I kept going to the rehearsals. Like, I don't want to see the rehearsal. I want to see the real clips from the movie. And it was just like impossible for me to get there. Um, But uh, eventually I I fleshed out enough to, to to kind of get to the end and uh, yeah, bravo at the bravo to the metal layer. It is, it is, it is, (laughs) I just, I'm flabbergasted that that's what the story was about. And I mean that when the, in the highest regard. Um, I did not expect that game to tickle a certain level of interest I have uh, in kinds of stories. Uh, and yet it was present here in a way that uh, I could not have seen coming. So um, uh, I, I, I might have to, I played that on Steam Deck and it was great. The analog stick stuff is awesome for the the UI elements of swapping between or the, the slowing down and fast forwarding. Um, I should load that up on the iPad. I will, I will warn you. Oh, yeah. I was, I was going to say, okay. Because I played it on the home theater. Uh, or, or I went back to it and I started playing it on the home theater. Uh-huh. And I will say this. Um, I feel like Barlow could have given us a 4K uh, version of this. Yeah, dude. And the resolution, like reading the text even on the film reels is like oddly hard to do like i was struggling on the steam deck sometimes to so it looked it looked phenomenal on my desktop monitor i will say like if you're if you're playing it on most i think like pc monitors i think it looks it looks great Mm -hmm. but like yeah once i put it up on the uh the big oled i was like now i'm getting some vintage fmv game vibes (laughs) (laughs) and i was like i i was um i was pretty impressed how much they avoided like the schlocky nature of the FMV game. Um, um, yeah. You know, I don't know that the, the films quite rise to, I would have wanted to have, you know, seen, seen these actual movies, but it, it rides an interesting line between those things, especially given that I can't imagine this isn't made without a deep love and appreciation for that era of nineties FMV game. Um, and it would have been very easy to slip into that 
mode of filmmaking or presentation um, to the player. Um, and, and it feels both intrinsically tied to that era of game design, but also unlike a lot of sort of modern FMV stuff, isn't just trying to give you another one of those stories in that style. It's it's an actual evolution of the concept in a way that um, I appreciated because I, I grew up on FMV games, deeply love them. But like, you know, when they made that new Tex Murphy, it was like, I don't, hmm, do I need another one of these? <laughs> like, like, like this? I don't know that I did. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, Immortality, I think, suggests a much more interesting way forward for the FMV game uh, as sort of a subgenre, uh, whether Barlow uh, himself chooses to to continue down that path. Yeah, I, I, like I think the thing about those, the thing to remember of those films is like they are all the movies within the game are all destined to be like artsy cult classics that are mm-hmm. still B movies within their era, and they all kind of have that vibe, right? Oh, they Where do. You're like, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like the, uh, like, yeah, the the third the third film is strong uh, lifetime television show <laughs> uh, vibes uh, that you uh, yeah, but also kind of good. That's that's the one I was probably the most like as I think about it. I'm like, mm, that is a good concept though. You do sort of a body double thing, and that's mm-hmm. that's some that's some cool horror. Uh, anyway, we should uh, there's some there's some other stuff I want to talk about, but I think we can wait till uh, the the Friday podcast. I'm playing a bit more Unbound and uh, Need for Speed Unbound. I, I have a bit more to say about that. Uh, but for now, we should take a little break and go to, once again, our special interview with uh, Matt Stoller uh, from the American Economic Liberties Project, uh, talking about the FTC action uh, regarding Microsoft and Activision's uh, proposed merger and situating that in a broader context of antitrust and anti-monopoly. So back after this. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. I am now joined by Matt Stoller from the American Economic Liberties Project and the author of Goliath, the 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. He also writes the big newsletter on Substack, which covers the uh, type of monopoly issues we're going to be discussing here and how the effects are felt in surprising ways. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I like how you introduced my newsletter. Big Look, if if you didn't want people to say it that way, you wouldn't put all those caps there. Uh, is, is my feeling. Uh, so obviously, we're we're here to discuss the FTC's action to block the Microsoft uh, Activision acquisition. And I'm curious, just in terms of where things sit right now, what is happening? What is what is the FTC actually done? What are the ramifications for this? And like, what's the legal path that, that things tend to follow from here? Sure. So about a year ago. Microsoft announced that it was going to buy Activision for $69 billion, roughly. And 
and Microsoft is one of the biggest companies in the world. I think it's worth $1.8 trillion. Um, and when a company buys another company of a certain size, um, I feel like I'm explaining the birds and the bees when it, when a boy company loves, um, <laughs> well, but this is the thing, right? Like so often this stuff is invisible in, in how we discuss these things. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. So, like, um, uh, sorry, I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm, I'm a little, I should also, I should also cite, uh, cause Matt mentioned at the start of the call, uh, Matt's got hella COVID right now. So <laughs> we should, we should, we should bear that in mind. So you're, you're getting a, an antitrust analyst who's a little loopy to explain a merger, right? Which is fine because antitrust is confusing anyway. So whatever. Um, so, okay. So, so Microsoft, uh, says they're going to uh, buy Activision, right? Now there are two when when a company tries to buy another company that and that the, the acquisition is above roughly fifty million dollars, then the, the the acquiring company has to file with the government and say, hey, we're going to buy this company. Um, you might want to look into it to see if there are problems. And there are two basically two divisions in government that do that. One of them is the antitrust division in the Department of Justice. The other is the Federal Trade Commission, which is an independent agency. And they kind of like divide it up informally. And the FTC, um, it handles kind of technology writ large. Um, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. But the FTC ha would handle a merger like this um, that involves technology and video games. So when Microsoft says we're going to buy this company, it's the biggest company in the world or one of the biggest companies in the world buying, you know, a huge gaming enterprise activision being a roll-up of other publishing studios and microsoft also having bought a bunch of publishing studios the ftc is going to want to take a close look and see okay is this going to violate the law and the law that it might violate is a law called the clayton act the clayton act says that a, a merger that may substantially lessen competition in any line of business that's the actual language um, or tend to create a monopoly is illegal okay now what does it mean to substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly um it means that if you are acquiring market power in a line of business which is to say you can more easily set terms and prices then that is an unlawful merger but okay? that would that language seems like it would block a ton most uh, like major acquisitions in a lot of sectors well i mean it, it should a lot of a lot of mergers that have gone through are you know should have been blocked like for example sprint uh and t-mobile a couple of years ago that the the trump administration let it through um i guess you could go back much further and you could say google buying double click or google buying ad mob which the Bush administration, the Obama administration allowed through, or Live Nation buying Ticketmaster in 2010. Um, let's just say the law has not been enforced particularly faithfully to its statutory text. Um, uh, out of curiosity, is that because the enforcers have sort of like taken a knee, or is it because courts have reinterpreted the law to sort of reverse its meaning? Mostly it's the enforcers, right? So we can get back to the like, so there's been this philosophical battle over uh, over antitrust and more broadly, like how we manage corporate power in America. And it's kind of been hidden from us for the last 40 or 50 years. And politics has been like, do you like flag burning or not? You know, social questions, which are important, but they're not everything. And um, 
but prior to 1980, so go the 1970s and before, corporate power was a major question in America in American politics. And the way that we debated corporate power was over the question of monopoly. Um, and and essentially before the 1980s, what we mostly thought was, well, if a company is big, it's probably big because it did something anti-competitive, right? Like it, it crushed its rivals in some unfair way. It's nothing wrong with beating a rival by making a better product and charging a lower price, but using coercive tactics is, is the problem. And before the 1980s, we basically were like, well, if you're big, we're going to be suspicious, right? Because you're, you're probably doing something, you know, untoward or something that, that we don't like. Um, and the way we're going to manage large corporations is we're going to have them compete with one another. It's like, you know, we have checks and balances in government. Um, the checks and balances in the private sector was competition. Uh, so we looked at 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 power. Power was the was the way that we understood the problem. We said we want to control power through competition, and we want to protect the citizen. In the nineteen late nineteen seventies, early eighties, we had this philosophical change in how we enforced antitrust law and also regulatory policy more generally. And that was we stopped saying let's think about power and started saying let's think about efficiency. And let's stop thinking about the, the citizen and let's start thinking about the consumer, right? So it no longer mattered if companies were powerful and big. It only mattered if they were efficient. In fact, if a company was big, that usually, instead of it, us being suspicious, that just meant in this new philosophical paradigm, well, they're big because they're just good at what they do. And all of these maybe coercive tactics, like forcing someone to buy one product um, if you, they need one product from you, forcing them to buy another product or underpricing them, um, like underpricing them and, and losing money on every purchase just to destroy the, that competitor in a market, which is called predatory pricing. All of these things, they all of a sudden became good, efficient practices. So since the early 1980s, really all until I guess maybe 2015 or so, um, we kind of like went along with this framework where power was irrelevant in in these in antitrust conversations. The only thing that mattered was low consumer prices. That's how you thought about efficiency. Um, and that really that's why when, you know, Live Nation Ticketmaster in 2010, everybody in the industry was like, this is crazy. And yet the enforcers were like, well, you know, if it's big, maybe it's efficient. Maybe they're going to help us get our tickets better. And so they kind of let it through. Um, and that was true with like the airlines. That's why airlines are so consolidated. It's true with like Boeing, like Boeing rolled up the whole aerospace industry and it's now the only aerospace. So it's like a lot, you know, Google um, was a roll up of hundreds of companies, um, Meta uh, and so on and so forth. You saw like this philosophical change has kind of rewired America in pretty fundamental ways. Now, when the financial crisis happened and all of a sudden you had these things called too big to fail banks. All of a sudden, people were like, wait a second, this seems like a thing. Like big corporate bigness seems like it affects politics. And you started to see some rethinking of that philosophical choice going back to the 1980s. And since, you know, in, in 2015 or so, a kind of new anti-monopoly movement emerged. And we started writing about, you know, how consolidation was a problem in all these different ways. We started talking about maybe this consumer welfare standard isn't the right way to go about it. Maybe we should reconsider market power. 
And then gradually we started to make a bunch of progress. Uh, even at the end of the Trump administration, there were some suits against Google and, and, and Facebook and the Google antitrust suit was the first monopolization suit in 20 years by the DOJ. That was the, since the Microsoft suit in the late 90s. And then we got some uh, some really good antitrust enforcers at the Federal Trade Commission and antitrust division who really believe in thinking about power as opposed to just consumer price. So that's Lena Khan, who's at the FTC, and Jonathan Cantor, who's at the antitrust division. So this Microsoft Activision deal is coming at a moment when you have deep skepticism from enforcers that these kinds of mergers are good for kind of like anyone. And I think if this merger had happened five years ago, it would have sailed through no problem, right? Because Microsoft is coming in, they're saying, we have Game Pass, we're going to put all these games um, into Game Pass, and it's going to be good for consumers, they're going to get cheaper stuff. And, you know, who cares if the market gets consolidated, because whatever, people are going to get like free, maybe, maybe even like cheap or even free games, right? And I think the enforcers would have accepted that. And now today you have a different model where those enforcers are saying, wait a second, is Microsoft going to get too much power in this market and then exploit that power? And I think they, you know, they spent about a year investigating. And what they found is they think that this merger is uh, the goal here is for Microsoft to roll up kind of the next platform for video gaming, which is the cloud computing platform. Yeah, this is... Um... Did I, did I answer all your questions? Because that was a, was a lot of questions. Uh, I answered all of them. I just forgot one of the most important. So where are we at in terms of the, the legal action right now? Oh, right. So, okay. So they they investigated for like, I don't know, 11 months or so. Yeah. And then they filed a case, right? They filed a challenge to the merger. And uh, I think it's in the administrative court. But they are, they're effectively going to go. And um, I believe they're going to have a trial. I think it's in, it might be the spring, April or or summer, I, you know, this is a COVID moment. So yeah. it, it's not for a while, but they're going to, they're going to go to court and they're going to try to argue to a judge, this kind of merger, uh, which is called a vertical merger because um, uh, while they're they're they are direct rivals, they have, you know, Microsoft owns publishing houses and Activision's big publishing set of publishing houses. Um, it's also vertical because Microsoft um, it has, you know, has Xbox platform game pass, um, cloud computing um, provisions. Right. So, so it's it's not it. They're buying uh, they're buying a a company. They're not buying just a direct rival. They're also buying a supplier and uh, and you know cu customer. Right. It's it's they're buying up and down the supply chain. So um, this th they'll go to court and they're going to try to tell the explain to the judge. Here's why we think this merger may substantially lessen competition in these lines of business. Microsoft will say, no, this, this merger isn't going to uh, substantially lessen competition. We're going to keep the market open and it's going to be good for everyone. And then a judge will decide. And then if either party doesn't like it, then they'll appeal. And then the appeals courts will, will choose whether, you know, whether the law was followed and eventually it'll, it'll resolve itself. So, like, so this is right now like an administrative complaint, and it goes to like a special like category of of a trial, effectively. So, um, the yeah, sort of, yeah. The the FTC has its own special court, 
which okay. is um, it's called the administrative law judge. And so this is going to go, I think this goes to the ALJ, which is what it's known. And then, I, you know what, I'm a little bit fuzzy on, yeah. this, on this party. You have to chunk. But it, it basically goes to the ALJ and then it'll go to a, an actual federal district court for the trial. And I think the ALJ is going to rule on whether, you know, the, the merger can be enjoined temporarily. But I, I could be yeah. getting that wrong. But the, but the point is, is that it's going to two courts and um, th- there are some questions like the Supreme Court is hearing whether the, the ALJ process is constitutional. It's, it, you know, it's kind of a mess. The, but the point is, is that the FTC is taking this to court. A court is going to hear it and decide whether the merger is legal or not. Um, I think to that, I am curious, like, you know, you alluded to the Supreme Court uh, looking at a, a ton of underpinnings to a lot of different regulatory regimes and the fact that it's sort of been a long, a longstanding project to make the federal judiciary more monopoly friendly, more, more friendly to big business. And, I, and I'm curious, like, given this environment, uh, how bright are the prospects for FTC actions along these lines to, to succeed? I mean, I think that it's not, um, I, I, so short term, it's probably okay. So not speaking to this case, cause this is a, I don't think this is a weak case. Like I yeah. think this is a pretty good case. Uh, like it's pretty obvious what Microsoft wants to do, you know, which is monopolize cloud computing. And, um, so I, I you know, I, I don't know that that seems like pretty persuasive to me. I mean, yeah. I'm biased. I don't like, you know, monopolies, but I don't think that it's a weak case. However, like broadly speaking, you know, the judiciary is, uh, it's full of judges who are favorable in monopoly. They were, you know, the Trump judges tend to be like reflexively favorable to monopoly. And I, I, I'm not biased against Trump or anything. It's just that the judges, the Trump judges, like when they hear cases, they are like, they go out of their way to be like, the monopolist is great. Um, he, you know, the CEO is totally persuasive. He's a buddy of mine. Like it's, it's really embarrassing. Like there's this one judge named Carl Nichols, DC circuit, uh, DC district court. And he was just like, I got to, you know, he's listening to this one hearing, the antitrust hearing, and he's like, I, I want to um, make point. This is like not really a conflict of interest, but I figured I should put it out there. The uh, company's uh, lawyer from Arnold and Porter, which is one of these fancy DC law firms, he's like, we play golf at the, the country club. I mean, he literally said this. This is how he starts the trial. He's like, we play golf at the country club um, and we're friends, but like, that's not a big deal. Like, okay, so let's, let's go. No recusal. Yeah, no, no, and he like, and then of course he rules for the like our old Porter guys who are like representing a private equity group, right? And it's like, that's the like, that's the, that's what the mindset is like with a lot of these you know Trump judges because they were picked from the Federalist Society, which is a a very sort of pro corporate um, conservative group, um, and then the you got the Obama judges who are kind of a mixed bag. Like some of them are really thoughtful on antitrust and have been reading some of the new stuff. And then some of them are just like, you know, your normie corporate types. And then, you know, you have the the um, uh, Bush judges who are generally, you know, Bush and Clinton judges who are usually unpredictable, but like usually pretty bad. Um, yeah. And and have been and when I say bad, I mean, they, they've been trained in a way of thinking in which when a when a corporation is doing something it's probably doing it for good reasons and the people that are 
you know, that are uh, testifying are probably being honest. Um, that's generally the way that they think about corporate power. They believe all the arguments about efficiency. Um, they think that uh, they think that like corporations are uh, big because they do a good job. Like, you know, they're they're the ones who are just totally surprised when McKinsey is found to be doing some other scandal. Like they're they're like they have like a very boomer mindset. Right. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, and it's kind of unpredictable, but like the Obama judges are generally better, like not always, but like the the judge who uh, just blocked a merger between uh, Penguin and Simon and Schuster. So Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, yeah. which would have taken the five big book publishers and combined them into four. That was Florence Pan, who was a, a, a Obama appointee. Um, so it's basically it's like kind of like a little bit of an age gap. And there are some Trump judges that I, I, that I know who are actually rethinking antitrust too. So it's not totally a partisan thing. It's just like how open do you are the new arguments? How much did you notice too big to fail being a problem during the financial crisis? Um, how much have you paid attention to the new literature on monopolization and all of the downsides of of that that go way beyond consumer prices? It's just that's like just how open do you are that like are you? And and I think that they're just they're just different types of judges. So it's a real I mean the judiciary is a real problem, um, but you know they are I think they are changing they are reading they are kind of like changing their minds but also you know bringing bringing cases forces them to confront the problem and i think we'll probably lose more than we win in the next three to five years and then we'll start to win more than we lose after that so one of the interesting things uh about when i when i follow the conversations around this in the game space one of the things that i encounter a lot is People love Microsoft's Game Pass, which is their Netflix subscription service, et cetera. Right. Like, they're, like, this is a company that even people who, like, sort of have a bit of reflexive cynicism of, like, ah, you know, big companies, you know, they're they're all bad to some extent. But, well, Game Pass is a great deal. And Microsoft lets a lot of, they buy a lot of studios that maybe have not had a lot of creative freedom, uh, you know, on the, on the uh, publishing market. And they give them uh, more creative freedom. So you get interesting projects from studios that have been acquired by Microsoft and it's added up to a real sense of uh, among a lot of uh, people who play games and buy games right now, a real sense of like, you know, at best, like, a, I don't, I don't see what the harm is. And then in some quarters, real hostility to any uh, like questioning of the deal, because from their standpoint, these nice people want to give you a good deal. They're trying to give you a subscription service that has tons of games. They're trying to create a, a publishing arm that produces tons of, of, of cool video games that other people aren't making. Don't, <laughs> don't screw this up for us. Uh, and that's kind of how people like, th th that's how a lot of people are regarding these questions. Uh, and I think, you know, there's kind of two things I want to ask you related to that. I do know that in the run up to all of this, Microsoft, Microsoft started issuing concessions that basically seemed to guarantee that like, Hey, we're not changing how anything really works right now. Like the, the games that you like, for instance, call of duty, uh, we'll promise that it'll be available on other platforms for a long time. Uh, but you also alluded to the fact that really this is a play for the future uh, in, in a way that is maybe hard to discern right now. And I was, I was wondering if you talk through like, you know, what are people missing when they sort of look at Microsoft as like, well, they're offering such good deals right now. 
And is the right framework thinking about like, what could they do in like a year or two years after this acquisition? Or is it like 10, 15 years? So Microsoft is going to destroy the gaming space. It's just, there's no two ways about it. Like, look at what has happened in Hollywood, all right, where you've seen a, a vertical integration and mergers. Uh, and then, you know, these streaming giants took over. And at first people were like, this is awesome, right? Look at all this great stuff that we get from Netflix and then, you know, Disney and all of this stream, you know, for cheap prices. And, you know, we don't like it, it, it provided additional what what seemed to be additional places for creative types to go and get their content out. Um, and then what ended up happening is like pretty much all you can get now is Marvel crap. Right. And the producers on the production and creative side, like their compensation is being crushed. And you you can't generate independent IP anymore because you have a small set of gatekeepers. They've essentially reconstructed like the studio system of Hollywood from the 1930s and 40s, um, only much, much, much bigger. And the amount of control they have over the cultural commons is substantial. Uh, they also aren't, there aren't markets, right? So you're not paying really for m movies or TV shows anymore. There aren't really ratings. Um, the data is kind of hard to get. Uh, so they're just kind of guessing as to what people might like. And a lot of the content is, is poor quality. And what you're seeing is Hollywood is gradually losing the ability to tell stories that people love. They're not really relating to their audiences anymore because the markets have been crushed. And that's what Microsoft is doing to the game space. And it seems really great at the time because you're, Microsoft is subsidizing game. Pass. It's not making money. They're subsidizing it with uh, monopoly rents from, windows and office and other and business software that they sell they're just giving stuff for free to gamers so that they can roll up power in the gaming market and i mean like who doesn't love free stuff right but there's no free lunch and if you as a consumer are just like well i love free stuff and clearly microsoft is going to give me free stuff forever and there's no downside and no free lunch like, I'm sorry, but like, I got a bridge to sell you, right? Microsoft is doing this for a reason. And you have to wonder why Microsoft is willing to lose money for so long in the gaming space. And the answer is because they want to monopolize the gaming space. And there are a, a number of reasons that they want to do this. One is they want to get enough market power so they can break Google and Apple's control over, uh, over mobile, the mobile platform, right? They want to have their own app store and they want to be able to bargain effectively with Google and Apple. Um, that's the sort of the defensive rationale. Now that, that Google and Apple, their app store monopoly should be broken with legislation. Um, yeah. And, uh, but the, but the offensive rationale is they want to control video gaming because it's a $200 billion market and they want to there, you know, you can't really move the needle for a company like Microsoft uh, it makes so much money. I think it makes $120 million a day. I mean, you need a lot of money to make it worth their while. So they look at a $200 billion market and they're like, okay, that's big enough for us to go in and monopolize and like, and actually change our, our profit and loss statement. But they're, they're, they're patient and they are underpricing everyone else in the market. And, you know, you might say, oh, this is great for now, but it's like, well, if you want no new entrants in the market, unless they get permission from Microsoft, 
And if, you know, like if that's the video game, if that's the gaming experience that you want, like controlled by one entity or maybe two, then this is a great, this is a great deal. And you'll just, you know, you'll get, you'll get this um, game pass until Microsoft has enough market power and then they'll raise prices on you. Um, and, and there we go. That'll, that'll be your experience and you will get what Microsoft chooses, uh, chooses for you. And if you want to enter the market as a, as a game creator, you will have to get permission from Microsoft. And there we go. That's going to be the market in five years. If this merger goes through, uh, that's why we're opposed to it. And I understand why people, you know, they like game pass, but it's like, you do not want to give Mike. I think if there's one thing we know about Microsoft is don't give them monopoly power. It's like bad things happen when Microsoft has monopoly power. The, um, and you right don't have monopoly power. Like that's important to note. Like, Game Pass is is a very compelling deal, but you can there are there are alternatives, right? Right, and and like it's really important. Like Facebook, when they were facing MySpace, they didn't do very much surveillance. They in fact told people, "Oh, we would never invade your privacy. We're not like those creepy weirdos at MySpace." And then once MySpace, like they killed MySpace, and then they bought their main competition, the surveillance went nuts. Right. And like, that's what you see is that companies are disciplined by competition. They're not when they, when that competition goes away, I mean, you know, that is, that's when the problems really start. And you, you Microsoft already said they're going to start raising prices next year on game pass and, a um, and, and a couple of other, uh, and, and their games and other, um, uh, products in the gaming space. Yeah. The, um, the value proposition, I don't know, the value propositions around uh, subscriptions are very funny to me because I often, like when I think about Game Pass, for instance, I often think, wow, what a great deal. Uh, but at various times in my life, like if I, if I was paying $15 a month for access to a ton of games, that's still much more money than I would have spent on games in a year uh, necessarily. You know what I mean? It's like, it, mm-hmm. in, because like games take a while to play. And so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like you could, buy a lot of games for for what you end up sort of passively being charged subscription dollars for and as, as that changes as that goes up uh the, the value proposition changes quite a bit but but for you like the real tipping point would be as cloud gaming comes to full like maturity uh then that is that is where you will you you would really see the effects of like this loss of competition this ability to sort of silo off microsoft owned properties yeah, that's right. I mean, if Microsoft is basically like betting that cloud, uh, that cloud computing, these cloud gaming will be, that's where everything is going. And they will have such a substantial lead that it will just be impossible for anybody else to to kind of catch them. And they'll just be like Apple is the tax for people that want to get onto iPhones um, or app developers and Google for Android, like Microsoft will just be that for gaming. If someone and so the reason, like one reason that a, a acquisition like this would become so dangerous is if you have fewer things under the Microsoft umbrella, is it like I imagine it's more plausible to say, well, Sony could make their own offering. Uh, now, admittedly, they wouldn't have the the tech infrastructure that Microsoft has, like, but they, you know, they do offer their own version of of Game Pass to some extent. 
uh, you know, the, the argument could be, well, these companies can be nimble. Uh, they can, they can respond and, uh, like answer what Microsoft is doing and, and compete in that way. But in your view, like competition on those terms will not be particularly fair. Well, I mean, you know, give Sony $120 million of profit a day to cross subsidize whatever they're doing in gaming. And I guess it, it would be a more fair competition between the two of them. Yeah. But it's like, this is, this is the issue is, 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 is it's like, would Microsoft have come into gaming and done game pass if it didn't have this, you know, $1.8 trillion of business software monopoly rents to throw off. Like, is that, yeah. is that reasonable competition? And I mean, it's bad to have a, a a company coming in that doesn't have to make money, which Microsoft in gaming doesn't have to make money because it means that they don't actually have to produce compelling products for their audience. Cause it doesn't matter if people are buying their, uh, it doesn't matter if people are buying their service or not, they don't have to make money and that breaks markets. It may not break the market now because Microsoft is sort of still buying up different publishing studios that have compelling games, but they don't have to produce games that people want to play. And once they have the ability to exclude, uh, you know, get new, new publishing houses, will, you know, will anybody start gaming publishing houses? I mean, who's going to make games, right? I mean, where's the new blood going to come from? So, this brings me to the thing, uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is that, so like our podcast audience tends to, and, and, and we ourselves, we tend to skew pretty far left. Uh, so, so a lot of folks here uh, who are listening, you know, would have been Sanders supporters, some Warren supporters, uh, but like mostly like, oh, like eventually, like, you know, uh, you know, God willing at some point, like there will be some sort of like socialism would alleviate a lot of this, et cetera. And there's just a lot of like, we tend to have a reflexive, like, ah, so business is going to screw you. What else is new? Tell us something we didn't know. But like sort of central to your political like philosophy is the idea that there is something like socially beneficial about like competitive capitalist markets. Um, But the, like, but they have to be policed is my understanding that like that, Competitive markets ha- can produce a lot of like social value, uh, but they also have a tendency to corruption. So my view is that markets are public institutions. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it means. It's like a, you can have a, a a a derivatives market where fraud is legal. You can have a farmers market, and these are very different things. Just because they both have the term market in them doesn't make them equivalent in any way, shape, or form. And every market is the someone writes the rules, and just the question is, who writes those rules and who has power in that market? So, you know, and not every market should be competitive. Like a water utility doesn't make sense to have two of them, right? You just have one, and you it's a net, you know, you have the public ownership or or very regulated or something like that. Electric utilities too. I mean, there are there, but like. Competition makes sense. Where you can have competition, you should have competition, right? Um, because it, competition is a very good disciplining force. When CEOs compete with one another, like they focus on their products because they want to beat the other guy. When they're monopolies, they focus on lobbying and tax evasion. 
and we have data on this. Um, yeah. You know, there it's just like it's very straight. The more concentration in a market, the more focus there is on lobbying, um, and the less concentration, the less focus there is on lobbying. So, it's it's not that that um, markets need to be policed, or, or it's just like we decide how our markets are structured, and that's been like fu- a fundamental part of American governance for 200 years, and we just stopped talking about it in the 80s. And that's why things are so corrupt these days. But this is not inherent. And I think like your audience is going to think, and I a lot of people think like this, well, big corporations are just going to screw you and that's just is what it is. And I guess we'll just like live our lives and try to avoid that as best we can. It's like that we can actually write rules to facilitate and enforce competition, which is the way that we do public governance, right? And the competitiveness among these large firms or among you know smaller firms but the but the making sure that we have fair competition right like there's a it, you don't want unfair competition because there are lots of ways to like um loot boxes and things like that would be a, a means of having like unfair competition in video gaming there's certain things you want to you want to prohibit you want to have the rules so that they're competing to make better video games not video games that steal more efficiently um but but again this is about like noting that markets are public institutions and historically the american model of egalitarianism and america what you know i think one could argue that a a core aspect not the only aspect but a core aspect of america has been economic egalitarianism through competitive fair markets um you know this is this has been a, a huge theme throughout the 19th century and the 20th century and so we're trying to bring that back and I think with something like Microsoft Activision, it's this like it it, it, in a, it it's an attempt to do that, and it's actually really compelling because you know it requires something from people. It requires people to see that the free lunch they're getting from Microsoft is just that. It's it's there is a you know my, Louis Brandeis, who's a Supreme Court justice, he had this um, you know he had this line um, about pricing below cost where he he said that the consumer will sell out his birthright for a mess of pottage right people will do anything for just like a a slightly cheaper price even if that cheaper price is going to facilitate monopolization it's like it's like you'll get you won't shop at your local store you'll shop at at uh, a chain that's funded by wall street that's intentionally pricing below cost to kill that local store that's just who we are as consumers and so what we need to do if we want a society and a society requires having local institutions, we have to prevent Wall Street from being able to do that. And then Wall Street is working through Microsoft in this case. So it's like it requires some level of foresight on the part of citizens to recognize that there is no free lunch, that what Microsoft is offering is not just a great deal, but it has like there is a there is poison in there, and and that's what's so interesting about it. I guess I found something kind of liberating there as well in terms of, uh, you know, whenever you're a lot of times the retort is, well, if you don't like it, you know, take your dollars elsewhere, vote vote for your dollars, act as a consumer, and like if enough consumers do a thing, then of course, like the, the you know the the virtuous outcome could win, sure. Um, but I, I like in that framework that like. No, you as an individual, like making a consumer decision, you don't occupy the same space as a citizen making a civic decision. 
uh, that, you know, it's when it's time to, I need to run and like buy groceries right now. Uh, the place that is cheap and convenient to you is probably where you're going to go. Even if, you know, stepping back as a citizen, you would want the, you know, big box store to be competing on a fair playing field with like the small, like local business. Right. I mean, it's like, So Walmart has deals with uh, let's take toilet paper during the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. There's these arguments like, Oh, Walmart, Amazon, they're just more efficient than small stores. Therefore, right. That's what's happening. Alas, the nostalgic small store, you know, they just can't compete. That's not what's happening. Okay. During the pandemic, Walmart was very explicit to its suppliers saying you serve us first. And if you don't deliver on 97% uh, on time rate, we will fine you. And guess what? We're Walmart and you need to sell to us. So if you're making toilet paper, do you deliver to Walmart first or do you deliver to like not even small stores, large stores that aren't Walmart? You go to Walmart, you give them what they need first, and then you go to smaller stores with what you have left. And Walmart also asks for better prices. So small stores will sometimes say, we can't get orange juice, which is a must-have product for in groceries, we can't get that wholesale, what what um, I was about to say Microsoft, but what I meant was Walmart. Yeah. What Walmart is selling orange juice for retail, right? Because they're just getting better prices from suppliers because Walmart has so much bargaining power. That's not efficiency. That's not like Walmart being better at distributing stuff. That's just Walmart having more raw power. And that should be illegal. There are laws against that and they they exist because it's important for walmart to have you know to succeed based on the merits of of how well they do as a retailer and not just based on their size and and market power but it's also important to protect smaller stores because if you want to introduce a new product and this gets to the microsoft case it you know one of the reasons that that a lot of new products grocery products are introduced in new york like pomegranate juice which is terrible but people apparently drink it but like they went and they introduced it in uh, manhattan because there's like a lot of bodegas and you go to the bodegas and you can be like hey would you sell this and if it sells you know we'll bring you more and the bodega owner's like sure i'll put it on a shelf and you know you can't do that now in most of the country because you have to go to bentonville or you have to go to seattle right to get your product onto onto shelves and so what has happened is the ability, like people might think, oh, there's these like big stores with cheap products. What's really happened, first of all, it's the prices are not actually going down, but like what's really happened is we're seeing less and less innovative consumer products coming into the market because there's no, um, it's like, it's hard to introduce things now. There's just so much consolidation. And that is, I think what we will, we will never know the video games that are not produced because, you know, you only have like, two real console makers and maybe three. Um, and then with cloud computing, you might just have one entity that's doing cloud computing. So you might think, well, Game Pass is such a great deal, but there is there are all of those games that you will never know um, because they just were never created. And that's true with, you know, that's true at Hollywood, it's true at the retail sector, it's true in like all sorts of different, in, in all sorts of different ways. Well, I know that like, you know, sort of central to your thesis as well is that, 
this is sort of foundational to the health of a democracy uh, that if you, you, you don't have healthy markets uh, and, and if like it is the, the ground is too fertile for like, you know, giant monopolistic corporations uh, that is like long term, long term bad fatal uh, to, to a functioning democracy. Do you want to have, you know, one company in charge of books, right? Like Amazon is like, that's a dangerous thing. And that's true. It's dangerous to have Google in charge of search, right? They, everything that people look for, Google just tells them the answer. And that's a dangerous thing. Um, it, same thing is true in social media. The consolidation over information and art is really, is a, is a threat to our ability to talk to each other about ideas. And I think of gaming as an art form, um, a place where you can enjoy yourself, tell stories, relate to one another. It, it's a place where people can organize if they want to um, and, and have conversations, political conversations if they want to. Do you want to have one entity controlling all of that? I think that's a dangerous thing. I mean, I, I you know, I, far be it for me to say, oh, games are like the place where all where the future is born. I, I, you know, I don't know, but you know, I think it's you know, it's a place where where storytelling happens and stories are important uh, in a democracy. They they're just important to human beings in general, and so I think it's dangerous to have one entity choosing, you know, and and choosing and influencing all the stories that. Um, that we can tell in this in this particular platform. I mean, Microsoft might be taking all these studios and saying, "Go have fun, do what you want." Now, um, I think we saw a lot of that in in the mid two thousand teens in Hollywood, where Netflix was getting all sorts of free money, and all of these studios were saying, "Well, go to Wall Street," being like, "We need to do the streaming thing too," and they got lots of free money. And they were doing all sorts of cool stuff. And people were like, wow, streaming is great for art. And it's not great for art now. And I don't know why Microsoft would continue to like to just give away free money once they have enough market power that they don't have to do that anymore. Um, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. But one thing I'm I'm curious about is. So I tend to uh, follow a lot of your work on Twitter and I follow discussions, uh, you know, around there. And I, I, I do know that like one of the critiques I see leveled against you and your sort of political worldview is that it does tend to discount a little bit the role of like structural inequalities or racism. And often I see the argument that like, hey, a lot of these regulatory frameworks that you like, uh, a lot of these times where America like had more uh, machinery to create a more egalitarian society or more egalitarian markets, all that lived quite comfortably alongside like Jim Crow and all, all sorts of like racial oppression. And so therefore like this isn't really, it doesn't suffice to answer a lot of the social justice concerns that you sort of see cropping up on the left. Uh, and so it ends up like it, it's depicted as a really incomplete or naive uh, perspective on like, American politics. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's an important it's an important statement because, you know, the, obviously the great, the great sin of America is the, is the color line. Right. Um, and W. Du Bois talked about how the, the problem of the 20th century was the color line. Um, and in many ways, the problem of 20, 21st century too. Um, so do you know what Albion Tourget is? No. So he was a, 
he was a great uh, civil rights hero. He was on the, he was a lawyer, was a union, um, union veteran, union soldier, and then, uh, and then a lawyer. And he was on the losing side of Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, and he was also the great, a great anti-monopolist. And Plessy v. Ferguson saw, is the separate but equal, like Supreme Court that's right, the, the, case, right? Basically, right. like we're going to shred the 14th Amendment. Fuck it. Yeah. And also, uh, interestingly enough, it was a, a railroad case. So it was mm-hmm. about segregation on railroads, which was a um, a common carriage rule, right? Saying, are you allowed to discriminate on railroads by race, and what does that mean? So um, it and and he, he, so Albion Turgeon was on the losing side of that, and he developed a lot of the race neutral frameworks that were later very important in twentieth century. In twentieth century, he was also an anti monopolist, and I think what you saw in the late nineteenth century in America was a kind of a battle between the sort of the populist types, Albion Turgeon, but also the populist party uh, for a, 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 a multiracial anti-monopoly framework um, and the anti-populists who were far more, um, far more racist because they wanted a, a, an extreme social hierarchy. And that social hierarchy was based on the vertically integrated corporation and there were, you know, and, and race was, was fundamental to that racial hierarchies was fundamental to that. Henry, Henry Clay Frick, who was kind of one of the key organizers of corporate America in the late 19th century. uh, He would, he explicitly used ethnicity and race to break labor unions um, and to break strikes. Some of the worst race riots that we've ever seen were a result of um, attempts to use race to 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 break strikes. Um, this very very interesting and sensitive political history that I think when you go back to it, what you find, and you can see this in the populist era in the 1880s and 90s, which was an attempt to address race but couldn't didn't succeed. The 1930s, a lot of the union organizing, the CIO, um, the the 1960s, you you know, Reconstruction, or you could call it the Second Reconstruction, anti-monopolists in, and the desegregationists have always been core allies. Now, there are also moments in American history where, you know, there was a consensus that racism was was good, right? And that was in, like the uh, sort of 1900, right, after the, um, after Plessy v. Ferguson and the the terrorist, uh, terrorist, terrorist movements. This in, is sort of peak eugenics framework being laid down, right? This is sort of where you see a lot of progressive movements also bound up in the notion of we can scientifically quantify uh, yeah, inequality, I mean, and it's good, by the way. That's right. And, and in fact, you know, there's a, there's an argument that, the, the progressive movement was, you know, they thought that a lot of the voting um, that Jim Crow was progressive in it because they were like, oh, there's all sorts of like voting, you know, after the Civil War um, in the South, there was a lot of violence on Election Day. Right. And for 30 years, 30, 40 years, it was basically like a mini war um, and a lot of stealing theft of election. And so when 
that there were like political machines in the South just sort of said, well, we're going to fix this by just not letting black people vote and also poor whites. But like, that's the, the solution. A lot of progressives who were not, you know, we call them progressives. I don't think that they are like not by today's term. Yeah. yeah. The progressive movement of the late 19th century, like early 20th century, they thought that was good because they were like, oh, this will clean up the electoral systems. Right. So there's, there were a lot, like a lot, a lot of linkages there, but there were. But the point is, is that in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, there was just a consensus in favor of a Jim Crow system and an industrializing, unified nation. And in that, in that, like moment, yeah, the anti-monopolists and the pro-monopolists were both, you know, had both like conceded that that um, you know Jim Crow was the was a stable social order that they that they liked. Um, but I think in general, what you would find is that is that you more had the anti-monopolists who were um, who who opposed uh, uh, racial segregation than supported it. And this would be people like um, Emanuel Seller, who was a congressman in the in the I guess the twenties to the nineteen seventies, who was very aggressive about. Um, repealing immigration restrictions, the xenophobic immigration restrictions of the 20s. He actually wrote the 1965 Immigration Act. He was involved in writing the Civil Rights Act, also wrote the Seller-Kafauber Anti-Merger Act, very important in antitrust law. Um, And and that was like, that's like a, he's like a pretty, that's a pretty standard type of of actor in this debate. Uh, In the South, you had a number, a lot of anti-monopolists and then some of them were, uh, they were into they they supported Jim Crow. One of them, like I wrote my a book called Goliath: The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And the main character is one of these guys. His name is Wright Patman. And Wright Patman uh, was, you know, hated banks, uh, big banks in particular, and hated monopolies. Those were his, that that was sort of the theme of his career. He He's Congress also the guy and, low key. He like figured out Watergate like immediately, right? That's yeah, that, that's, that's him. Right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Like within, like I talked to his investigator named Curtis Prince. I was like, "When did you know it? Like how it worked?" He was like, "Oh, it, instantly. We knew it all. We just couldn't prove it." Um, and anyway, so so he, Mike Patman was from Texarkana, and he was in Congress from 1929 to 1976. He was one of these guys that supported Jim Crow. He voted for. Um, he signed the Southern Manifesto in the 50s. He voted for Jim Crow restrictions. But he also had this other side to him because he, in the 1920s, he was in the Texas legislature and he opposed the KKK. He was very aggressive about opposing the KKK. And he had, you know, in throughout his career, he made sure that where he could, he would, you know, the economic egalitarian programs he would develop would go to people without, um, you know, they, they weren't they weren't segregated. It was like he would. He, he was not personally a racist and he didn't particularly like it, but he knew that he would lose because his constituents were very into Jim Crow. And that and I think a, a lot of the Southerners who were a lot, most Southern representatives were not actually aggressive anti-monopolists. Um, the ones who were also tended to be more like Patman than, um, you know, <coughs> than Martin Dees, who were like. Because there is something about um, racial segregation that which screams a need for like authoritarian hierarchy. 
because like racial segregation is kind of like a fascist regime and the fascist regimes and Jim Crow itself depended on a consolidation of economic power. That is what sharecroppers, you know, they got their seeds from from the, you know, the furnishing man and the they sold their crops to one entity. And a lot of the terrorist violence, you know, it took place when people tried to band together and go outside of that economic arena that was controlled by the local establishment. So, you know, I, I think like the anti-monopolists did not naturally fit within the, the Jim Crow coalition. There were some reasons why for for temporary periods, there were some Southerners who did, you know, because the South was much poorer than the rest of the nation. They were kind of like, we're being oppressed by Northern capital on, on the one hand, they were like, we're being oppressed by Northern capital. On the other hand, we want to keep our own systems of internal oppression going. And so they could go either way. Um, but like, I, I think in general, what you find is that people that don't like monopoly power don't sit easily within coalitions based on racial oppression. And people that do like monopoly power do sit easily in those coalitions that like racial oppression. I would say kind of as a general rule, but there are of course exceptions. And I think it's like a really important conversation to have. Um, and one that I think the anti-monopoly movement is having and kind of needs to continue to have. And like, I do know that in your, in your worldview, like a, like a lot of social benefits accrue from having fairer markets, more uh, like more open markets. Uh, but you know, one of the things that you run into is like there are limits to the structural uh, inequalities it can address because like, you know, one of the things that is a legacy from all of this is we talk about like the racial wealth gap, which is which is real, uh, but also more broadly, it extends to a and has historically extended to a lack of access to capital, particularly for for right. black Americans. And this one seems particularly hard to solve because like, you know, you, you hear about this, uh, you know, and I was following discussions around like whether or not Dan Snyder will be forced to sell uh, the Washington commanders. Uh, I was listening to a, a sports podcast and there was a discussion of, uh, you know, the NFL really would like uh, particularly like a black owner uh, to, to come in, but there are not many uh, like vanishingly small, like black billionaires. Uh, in in the United States, uh, and that sort of extends all the way all the way down, right? Where uh, you you do not have large concentrations of capital, uh, you know, due to some of these like historical patterns. And like, I'm curious, like, what is what's the way out of that box, right? Because like some of this is just like the the situation that that would be inherited, even if we started enforcing things much better and started like having fairer markets what we've inherited is such a legacy of inequality and oppression and economic exploitation that like still the amounts of capital that are available to, you know, people in America is really different along racial lines. Yeah. I think that's an important point. And one, I mean, I think one of the things that you find, um, at least I found when I did this, some, I report on this on a, a merger between Comcast and NBC and 10 years later, what happened and Comcast had promised to uh, deliver access to its cable network to black and um, Latino uh, media executives and owners, and then hadn't, 
But one of the things that they found, and these were well-known people like, you know, like, um, like P. Diddy and um, um, Magic Johnson, is like they, they couldn't really get access to capital. Even though they were really wealthy and really respected, you know, they couldn't get access to capital at the same terms as, uh, as white uh, executives. And, and just broadly speaking, there's, there's not the same, um, you know, there's just a lot less capital in the black community. I don't think it's like, a, I mean, obviously it's a, like, a, you could go back 400 years if you want, people do, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of black capital was stolen in 2007, eight, nine. Like we don't have to go back that far. Hmm. And that was not inevitable. Right. I mean, we just, for you, it's like, the, for you, it's like the housing crisis that is like, I mean, it's not, it's not only that, but like yeah. that is the biggest loss of black wealth in at least my lifetime. Right. That I, that I saw. And it was like, everybody was had money stolen, but like black people had most of their money stolen. Um, but that was totally not inevitable. That yeah. was just a result of policy choices that George Bush and Barack Obama made that we didn't have to make. Um, we could have made totally different choices and made things a lot more equal for everyone in my in my understanding, like having followed you on Twitter, it always it, it does seem like two thousand eight. Like this is kind of your 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 Batman like villain origin story, where where you are. Uh, th- this right. sort of seems like the moment where where you sort of become Jokerified uh, about the the state of politics. Uh, is you were on the hill then, right? Yeah, I mean, Jokerified is is what like Jokerified implies like some sort of sense of like deep cynicism, but like. If I had become Jokerified, I would have been like, "Okay, I'm going into private." You'd be, you'd be a lobby. You'd be a lobbyist for Bank of America yeah, or I mean, something. Like, I, yeah, I, I'm mad because it yeah. didn't have to be this way. Like, if if I thought it was just inevitable for it to be this way, I wouldn't be mad. I would just be like one of the endless people who are like, "Oh, you know, Obama had to do what he had to do because of this or that," and like, well, you know, and I don't believe that. I think like we made choices. And he made choices and like we we allowed this to happen. And we're, it didn't happen. When happen. we're talking about the the loss of black capital, black wealth, are we primarily talking about like people's houses being taken in the wake of well, the crisis? Well that was that's that is definitely like that is the main source source of, of all American savings is 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 home equity. But yeah, for, for black at that at that point, that's exactly what it was. Um and and I don't and to be clear, if that was not like it was not equal then and it wouldn't have been equal like we could have made different choices but like yeah the you know the wealth inequality was pretty is dramatically skewed and actually had been getting better from the like 40s until the 70s and then in the 80s it started getting worse like when we started looking away from market power and corporate power there all of these like racial gaps that had started to like close they started to open up again in sort of the same way you see like class gaps opening up, like any existing inequalities tend to get worse once like this, this machine starts spinning up in the eighties. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, my general sense is that if you have less power, when you consolidate power, you're going to get, you're going to be treated worse. And I, my, you know, black people in America have less power. Yeah. I mean, so do like single women. So like you could look at the kind of like any, group that has like less power they're going to get screwed more when you facilitate the consolidation of power in the in the corporate sector it works in reverse too um but i i think that that 
you know, you do need to, to, I think what we saw with the, from the, from the late thirties until the 1970s is there were, there were all sorts of ways of correcting these imbalances. There should have been more. Um, we should have done it faster, but it was getting better. And it was getting better because we were, we were both helping like the little guy, right. Which, and we were preventing the, the banker from constraining, from constraining all of us. And I think that's really the core of it is it's like, you got to do both. Um, and, and, and that's like, you know, we, we, we can do that. And I think in many ways we are starting to, um, you know, I think Biden's doing a much better job. Like he's best president I've seen. I will, Um, I will cop to this, uh, before the, like before the election, I think we, we were recording some things before the primaries and I was like, Biden's going to be Obama part three. It's going to be a total nightmare. Uh, yeah, I'm not even sure I can vote for this guy. And like, it's significantly better than I thought it would be. Um, and significantly better than I think most of the other can't like, I think it's a much better administration, like a Buttigieg administration could have pot. Like, I, you know, I might, I, I might still be happier with Warren. I am skeptical. I always feel like they might've knifed Bernie. If Bernie had somehow like pulled through, I, I do wonder if like the institutional resistance would have made that a disastrous presidency. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at hypotheticals um, just because, you know, like, I don't, I have no idea how any, yeah. like they all have strengths and weaknesses, but I'm just surprised at, you know, Biden, like Biden got us out of Afghanistan. I didn't yeah. see that one coming. Right. Yeah. And that's, a, that's like a, I mean, when you're like, who's going to end endless war? Like Joe Biden doesn't come to mind. No, but like he did, he stood up to the entire military industrial complex and was just like, no, you guys are bullshitting me. We're out. Yeah. And like, and pay the political cost. Like, it was an ugly process, but like it was it was really ugly and they embarrassed him and they embarrassed everyone associated with it. And like it was crazy sabotage, like attempted sabotage of Biden because he had the nerve to actually do what the public wanted. And like that was some courage, I gotta say. And I'm not I was I was not a Joe Biden fan, and then he did that. I was like, no. okay, that guy did something really good. Um, um yeah. there's one other thing I think you alluded to, and uh, you know, we were talking before the show, but you you did mention that on the left in particular, there was a diminishment of interest and understanding of like economic mechanisms that are so important, uh, like yeah. in the U.S. Um, and you mentioned that it really came to a head in 2008, where there was just a lack of like understanding of what is happening in terms of policy. Um, And like my impression is this is always like one of the things that sort of has divided you from a lot of like the democratic left uh, for instance, is like that you, you sort of have like a real frustration with a lack of interest, a lack of literacy uh, in terms of like ability to evaluate uh, economic policy uh, that you saw in like 2008. Yeah, I mean, there's just like a, people. People are. I mean, it's it's changing, but you know, it's changing a lot, which is exciting. But it's like, um, so this Microsoft Activision thing happens, and you know, this is going to matter to a lot of people, and I think gamers have like views on it, right? And I'm not sure how informed those views are by, like leftist thinking on it, right? Like, like social, you know, DSA or whatever, like. 
no one realistically is like, there's going to be a government takeover of the gaming sector. Like that's not in the conversation. Gamers, no one's talking about it because it doesn't make any sense to talk about it. It is informed by the question of whether the FTC is going to stop the merger or not. Right. And that's the like ultimate political question. Right. But to, in order to like know whether that's a good idea or not, you have to like you have to know about how antitrust law works. You have to care about gaming. You have to have some sense of what it's like to create a game and enter that market. Or you have to talk to people who know who know that um, you have to be interested in business and you have to be interested in 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 the the actual act of commerce. And you can't be contemptuous of it because it's like part a lot of the a lot of the um, what I'm reacting to this is is this kind of like left wing disdain for commerce. But nobody, nobody like if you're a gamer, right? Like it, you like video games, right? And you don't resent someone for making a video game and selling it. That's like cool, right? If somebody makes a video game you like yeah. and you pay money for it, like people think that's a good trade. You know, and it is. And that's not a that's like something that we should celebrate and think of as a virtuous thing, as opposed to just being like, oh, business is bad. Profit is bad. It's like, no, if somebody makes a video game that you like and you pay for it and they make money so they can make more of them. A OK. Yes, let's do that. Right. And and like my the framework I have is like one that accepts that and recognizes it and sees that human beings like to trade things with one another. And that we should we should respect and celebrate that basic impulse. And what I what I think is important is that is that people who have kind of like social justice sympathies should really be interested in that basic impulse and respect and celebrate it and try to make sure that we structure our markets so that people feel um, so that we constrain the um, impulse to dominate and and. Um, and facilitate the impulse to actually like produce better products and services. Like that's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the way that I, I, I see it then. And I just think there's a lot of people that, you know, they kind of hand wave the eco economic questions away by saying, Oh, capitalism. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you say, Oh, that's just capitalism. Then you don't have to, then that's like just lazy. You don't have to think about it again versus being like, okay, what is Adobe really trying to do with Figma? Like, what are these markets? How do you actually like who buys these different products and what's actually going to happen here? Like that takes work. Right. And I think it's fun because I really enjoy thinking about business. A lot of people don't think it's fun, but you have to recognize it's important and that like these systems exist and people use them and like them and we need them. And we should just develop a politics based on that. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm where I'm at. And I think a lot of the like you know, some of the romantic left, I think, doesn't want to concede that these things are real systems that people want and rely on. And they don't want to concede that there's this basic human impulse to trade with one another. Yeah, I, I will say, um, you know, to, get, to give a plug for for big here, uh, like one reason I enjoy I enjoy keeping up with it uh, is because like. I find I've generally found your model has a lot of explanatory power for a lot of things I observe in 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 life and in politics and like that's one of the ways you know in social sciences that's one of the ways you evaluate whether something kind of works right does it have decent explanatory power predictive power and like you know with, with big uh you i like 
it is fun if you're if the, all this sounds interesting you're listening to it like like big is a newsletter where there's a lot of digging into the various faces this like you know you pull it you call it like the impulse to dominate uh the various faces and forms uh that takes and i think you know you do a terrific job on big unpacking that and you know for me i think like once you sort of see it it's it's kind of hard to unsee um, yeah that's right you know, I've, you know, not that you're a Waypoint Radio listener, but last week I was talking about we we just sort of realized in my condo building that um we can't find a decent condo management firm, uh, building management firm because they all got bought, um, and now we can't repair oh, our elevators because uh the like elevator repair company that like serviced this building for like thirty years got bought out, and now it's a big company that like you can't get a guy. You can't get a guy, and when he comes, he's like you know three times as expensive as as the old guys, and like you know it happens on these weird small scale things where it's like why why is my building falling apart around me? Uh, oh man, yeah, that like sucks. local monopolies. I just you know there was a story in the Wall Street Journal today about one of the problems with buying and selling cars is that the the paper that you use for car titles, yeah. Is apparently now in shortage because the um, there are there are only a few companies that made this specialized paper. Yeah, it's a weird little stock. Yeah, yeah, and so you can't. People are having real trouble buying and selling vehicles because they just can't get the paper. The state can't generate the paper. Yeah, that's wild. It's so it's like it it's so crazy, but yeah, no, I mean I think like that's what's so exciting about this framework. It's like when you learn it, and I just learned it, you know. 10 years ago or something. It's not like, it's pretty new to me too. Um, I guess 10 years isn't new, but you know, it's within my living memory to not know it. Um, It has tremendous explanatory power. I think that's what's so compelling about it. You're like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I see all of these things that I thought of as just like, you know, they're just in the store, right? All of a sudden you realize, oh, that they all have whole supply chains and arrangements of power behind them and there's politics behind every everything every lamp right and all the components that are that are part of that lamp there's politics behind them there's market structure behind them and all of a sudden like the world opens up because you're like oh politics isn't just about this very narrow set of of boring issues and political consultants saying boring things um it's actually about the whole world and and all of commerce, which is, which is very exciting. It's like, and this gives us a language to talk about all the money and power in the world. And it's a language that is very compelling to people across the ideological spectrum. Like you can talk to conservatives about monopolies. They don't like monopolies, or if they do, it's very easy to trap them in a way that like they find very uncomfortable. So it's like, it's very exciting. And this is like the, you could tell once you start wielding these languages, it's like, it's the natural egalitarian language of america and it's very powerful because of that um one last thing that i I wanted to ask uh so your prediction for where the ftc action moves from here uh you know we obviously right now it's it's headed uh to to uh you know a special court uh but you know i think a lot of people look at this as the whole judiciary right now is biased and bent towards letting monopolists monopolize letting business do business um what is what's the upshot like even like say the ftc pushes this and it becomes a big high profile thing 
and they get their asses kicked, right? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work out at all. Like the, the attempt to block it or slow it down meaningfully, uh, sort of fails. What's the upshot though of, of taking these fights? Um, well, the upshot is that, you know, you ultimately do have to win in court, yeah. right? And if you don't, if you don't try, you can't win. And I think for 40 years, we basically didn't bring cases. And so everything de facto became legal. So, you know, in order to in order to actually change the law or change the business practices, you have to start bringing cases. And even if you lose, you know, you clarify the law and you learn about the industry, like a court case becomes a, a a public record of how an industry works. And so if, you know, if an entity like does monopolize, like let's say that Microsoft buys Activision and you don't challenge it, and then they go and they monopolize the gaming space, you know, oh well, right? I mean, who knows what would have happened? If you you go through this trial, you show what they're trying to do, a judge says, well, you know, I don't believe you, and then Microsoft goes and does it. Well, you have a whole trial where you can say, look, this is this was going to happen. We we said it was going to happen. A judge let it through anyway. And you can go to Congress and you can say, tighten the law. Or you can go to another judge and you could say, undo the merger um, or or um, you know, bring a bring a monopolization claim, and you have a whole evidentiary record to point to. And it's like that's so important. The public record is so critical. And it's like because we didn't challenge a lot of murders and because we didn't because we haven't challenged a lot of bad conduct, we don't have a record of how a lot of these industries work um, or where, you know, or where we need to maybe tweak some things in the law. So, you know, what you don't try, you don't get. And I think we, we are trying at this point. Uh, we will win some. We will lose some. I mean, Simon Schuster Penguin's a big deal. Um, so we already are winning some things. But it's like you've got to try. You really just have to try. I mean, that's like the very basic starting point. Like you might lose, but if you don't try, you will definitely lose. Right. And that I got to jump. But yeah, that's, really that's perfect. Uh, thank you for for joining us. Uh, people should definitely check out the big newsletter on Substack. Uh, it's Matt Stoller uh that's substack or is it matthew uh it's matt store uh yeah so so check that out on on substack it's a it's a good read matt thank you uh for chatting with us and being uh so generous with your time hey thanks so much talk to you later And we're back uh, to dip into the question bucket. Uh, once again, you just you just heard a conversation with uh, Matt Stoller of the Economic uh, American Economic Liberties Project. Uh, hope you in, enjoy the discussion of of antitrust and and uh, the the role of anti competitive mergers uh, in a lot of our current political and economic hellscape. Uh, so, uh, hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. So let's see, let's let's dip into the question bucket here. Um, and I think to start out, this one just kind of tickles me. Uh, Mike writes, 
Hello. After listening to some of the proper talk, I was thinking about if I would survive an apocalypse. The answer is likely no. But then after also playing a bunch of Pentiment, I got to thinking, if I had been born several hundred years ago, before modern medicine, would I have survived to my current age? I am 41, and the answer is a definite no. I would have died in childbirth with, with certainty and probably taken my mother with me. I think my brother would have made it, but alas, since my mom would have already been dead, he would never have existed. So for you, do you think you would have lived to your current ages, or have you had an incident in the past that definitely would have killed early 16th century you? Yeah, when I, I, had, a, I had appendicitis when I was 17. Dunzo. Gone. Damn. Uh, yeah. Also, I, that broken I, I, shoulder probably doesn't go well for you. Uh, yeah, in, in probably doesn't. Probably doesn't. Would it kill me? I'd probably because the the collarbone. The thing is about collarbone injuries. Um, twenty years ago, uh, so I shattered my collarbone. I basically like uh, when I was uh biking back in San Francisco uh a number of years ago, going down a hill, and there was an unmarked pothole, and basically yeah. it was really tiny, and my wheel got stuck in it. So basically, like the wheel turned. 90 degrees and it just threw me to, to, to the ground no. which I had a helmet on or I would not be here. Um, but like I've had friends who have had like catastrophic, like near catastrophic collarbone injuries and they didn't used to, they were like, well, it just heals. But the thing is when you're young, it can heal and you won't notice that it's fucked up until 20 or 30 years later when you have, you're having horrific back and neck pain. And a buddy of mine, they that he got it checked out because he's been having some some back issues as he like enters his like mid late 30s and they're like well you should have had surgery but they didn't do that as often uh to kids and so this needs to be fixed at some point they're like it's kind of just whenever you want it to be fixed <laughs> and by fixed we mean we're gonna, we're gonna break your collar knock bone. you out and we're gonna shatter your collarbone and we're gonna put it back uh uh together but yeah appendis append appendicitis would have been the one that knocked me out early i i when I had that, um, I I was at a guitar center and uh, all of a sudden my stomach started hurting and I, my friend took me home. I went to the doctor. They checked me out. Um, it came back like whatever examination they did came back inconclusive. Went home, had some pain meds, woke up the next morning, felt fine. Go into the doctor. Uh, they're like, we definitely have to do a follow up. And then they did like some imaging again. And we're like, holy shit, your appendix is about to burst. And I was like, what's about to burst? They're like, I, I don't know, within the hour. Uh, so they just, um, I, I went from. Oh, that's a the way last... closer call than usually people have with appendicitis. Yes. Um, and uh, so they, they, um, they knocked, they knocked me out like 10 minutes later. <laughs> and then I went and had emergency surgery to, to have it. Uh, Cause yeah, you don't want, basically when your appendix blows up, it's just like a poison. It's like, do you want poison running throughout your body? Probably not. Um, and I don't, uh, so I don't think I would have survived that uh, in Pentiment times. What everyone else's survival prospects, Kato? I don't know. I can't see. Hmm? Yeah, this is oh. the thing I kind of wonder about is almost certainly the amount of reading I did as a little kid and just like the fact that at this point now I've I've spent like you know, 20 years staring into monitors uh, really closely. Like that has probably made my vision worse, but I do think my vision was just pretty bad. Even like by, you know, middle of grade school, yeah. I don't think it would have been totally debilitating, but I do think it makes things a lot harder 
um, and does increase the odds of like just having a grievous accident. Yeah, I got glasses when I was in first grade. Which is basically all I can like. I, I don't really remember a time before glasses, so my eyes are really bad. Yeah. Um. And I, yeah, I am curious whether or not uh it, it it advances at the same rate uh in 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 a different time, but they didn't like you know my glasses are special glass because they they need to be too thick otherwise like right <laughs> i have yep. the polycarbonates no. the high index lenses yep. yeah that shit wasn't around i just wouldn't have been able to see <laughs> yeah i'd be dead i'm saying i'm saying I, I think i think there is a very low chance of renata survival for many a reason um or i mm, the real question is it comes down to how many dislocations I have by what age, you know, like my joints would get, would <laughs> yeah. get real bad, real fat. Cause like, we don't know, but it's back then. I don't know that my shoulder is loosey goosey. I just know that I keep getting hurt and like that shit stacks up over time. Um, no, I think I'm, I think I'm the kind of disabled where I'm just done, done ski. Uh, <laughs> I would be, I would be out, out, out of the running. Yeah, I, I think th- this is, you know, this is really one of the things that uh, there, there's two things I think people like when you have people getting idealizing the past too much. One is like the amount of sheer routine shit that happens to people that was like debilitating or fatal. Uh, and two, the fact that almost certainly you would be a peasant. <laughs> almost certainly you would all be peasants and the whole thing is like this is how it used to be and this is how like uh people lived and it's like no that's that's how high status people lived you would not be among them uh my like everyone there's a there's a might be a very very slender thread of some like higher status uh like like family tree like going back to like Spain, but it's like one of those like family story type things that like probably bullshit because like I think people like, you know, people will often claim like, well, you know, we're descended from like some of the original Spanish colonists. And it's like, no, you're fucking not. Like, you're almost, like, you know, show, cite your sources. I see no evidence of that. Uh, so, like, like by and large, uh, the, the background is, like, in, in entirely, entirely peasants uh, all the way down. And, uh, like, a, a, the healthy dollop of, like, newly colonized people uh, who are just being chased around by evil Spaniards. Like, that's that's it. Um and so I think that that's the other thing to, to, to bear in mind is would your body hold up to the uh, to the grind of like large scale agriculture in the era before power tools? I choose not. Yeah, not for me. <laughs> I, lo- I choose to lay down. <laughs> I choose to believe uh, that I can wake up in another body later. Nope. Can I wake up in a couple hundred years? <laughs> Let, let's just move this along. Uh, oh, I, I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, I want to say Jeremy in Dallas, Texas writes, I had to uninstall Marvel Snap because I am falling behind on programming class. Thank you for the recommendation. And damn you. 
Question, have you had to stop playing a very addictive, addictive game for school? Or what class did you fail? And because of what game? <laughs> so it is a documented... It is documented on the record that I definitely got fired because of Bioshock 1. Um, <laughs> that, like, I got fired from a job and became a freelancer because of Bioshock 1. Uh, as far as school, so the, yeah, so school went bad real fast in part because the Total War series was, like, really new as I was going to college. And my, midway through my freshman year, Medieval Total War came out and all hell broke loose. Uh, that was like, I played that game so goddamn much and I would get on such like grooves with it that it was just like, I don't need to go to class. I need to, uh, I, I need to finish like conquering, uh, North Africa and, and continue my, my drive on Jerusalem. That was, that was like an entire year for me. Uh, and, I don't know that I I don't know that I failed classes, but it was like, well, goodbye dean's list, all that stuff, <laughs> um, and it, like it never fully recovered because like uh, like a year or two later, it was Rome Total War, and that just like you know at that point we're we're just we're on an express elevator uh, to like academic collapse. Yeah, I was fortunate to avoid playing like those sorts of time sink games that could lead. That was, it was like one of the reasons I like even when I had the time in my life for games like WoW uh, or other MMOs it was just like all the stories I would hear from people is just well kind of ruined my life but I'm having a great time uh, I'm like okay like maybe I'll find other pursuits I mean like JRPGs were the closest I got to that where so many nights I stayed up until two three four in the morning just aimlessly grinding characters for no particular reason just because number go up and I had a I had a fascination with playing JRPGs and maxing out the in-game timer because they never went past nine 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 so I always found it humorous to eventually have invested enough hours that the game just said Ugh, I give up <laughs> like, <laughs> fine you're playing this a lot um but I, I I was at least fortunate in that I don't I don't think it ever caused catastrophic harm to my my academics and you know i've told the story of the podcast before of you know in fact it's actually my mother who was addicted to tetris and had to have the games taken away from her so the problems with video <laughs> games in my household was not with me it was with uh other other members of the family i um i lost a i lost a summer job to uh tf2 The first summer, uh, I was away from home, basically, which is also, you know, exacerbated by the fact that it was the first time I was away from home. Mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm, I was just staying mm -hmm. up till like ungodly hours. I also, it was Cause also, cause your family was also kind of like controlling about the games too. Right. So like, this was a, here's the opportunity to fully make it's Kato's time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a hundred percent. Like, you know, you would only play like an hour a day and there was like a literal timer and then you have to get off the computer. Um, but I also had I had two jobs that summer. One was being a, a faux security guard for the like dorm building, but during specifically the grave shift from uh, midnight to six, 
Uh, that was Fridays. And then like earlier in the week on like Mondays and t- Monday through Wednesday, I had a different job at like a different desk, uh, at the, the like AV desk, uh, in, um, and so like my weekend would start with me staying up all night, one night, just being at that security desk. And then I would just kind of roll on that schedule <laughs> and like, uh, sleep a little bit, then wake up, play a bunch of TF2, um, and instead of trying to be ready to like, I just ended up, I would end up missing shifts on the Monday after. And, uh, then I had to stop playing TF2 so late. Um, but I did lose that job. So academic I, setting, I but not, T- T- huh? I was like, I just didn't remember TF2 took over a lot of people's lives. Um, that game. Yeah. You can uh, just, it's so easy to play forever. You play it forever. <laughs> it never ends. I don't think I've ever lost that much time to a game that it became a problem for me. Um, hmm. Trying to think if there's any time I got in trouble. I don't know. I was a pretty boring kid. I don't know. I just did. I just I mostly just did the things that I was supposed to. I don't think I've ever even gotten fired from a job, but I did have the opposite happen where my uh, co-worker, when I was a housekeeper, my coworkers would, um, because they knew I wanted to write, would just be like, don't do anything. And I'd go, what? And they would be like, yeah, don't worry. I will we'll cover you for the next like two hours if you want to like start like working on like a freelance piece or something. Um, this was, wow. I had a similar, when I worked on, um, where I met my wife, we were working on the university paint, uh, like, like one of the summer jobs they would give to students was like, go and repaint dorms and stuff. And I, and, and we met, we were on the, the paint crew and, the person who led it was the university's full-time painter. Like his job was like to go around, like, like fixing up and repainting stuff all over the university. Uh, so he had a real job and he was like a, a, a real, like a uh, skilled tradesman. And then he had a platoon of summer hires and his, but like, yeah, he was, he was a saint because he would do stuff where like, you would check the forecast and he was like, oh, man, like we had a heat wave coming. Uh, well, guess what? I just discovered we need to repaint the only uh, dorm that has central air on campus. Uh, so we're, we're repainting the dorm, uh, you know, this week. And we get there and there's not, not anywhere near enough work to do. And he's like, so you kids, uh, you kids just hang out here. And like you want a nap or whatever, go for it. I've got some other stuff I need to do across campus, i.e. real work that like you <laughs> kids will slow me down with. Uh, but you guys just like, you know, continue uh, taping out rooms and putting uh, cloth down and we'll get to the stuff eventually. And like we would ride out entire like shitty weather days uh, and weeks like uh, with this guy stashing us all over campus. So we could just continue soaking up paychecks for like minimal uh, work. <laughs> um, and yeah, like it, it was like the, 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 the workers of the university were, were so universally kind, uh, you know, is, is the way I remember, remember them and, and having the experience working with them. Uh, there was a lot of patience, uh, for the bullshit, the dealing with students involved, uh, and also a lot of attempts to like make the work as least burdensome as possible. That being said, uh, I still, I still hate uh, the like 
oil-based paints that we use, we we seal like metals up with and like rails because uh, like if that stuff got on you there was no getting it off without like a huge amount of like really really like horrible stripper uh you know that was that was the one shitty part of the job but um maybe our last question for today uh chris writes Hey, Waypoint crew, the other day I was going to get my oil changed and caused a slight issue for the mechanics due to driving a manual transmission car. Definitely oh, we did my... this. We did, the, we did oh, this one. Oh, this, this one. Oh, this Do one you want to cool. answer it? Do you want, you can answer it again. You can answer it. You can, re- you can keep reading yeah, come it. Come on, Rob. Go on, Rob. Rob. Come on. Go. No, you can have Rob. it. Rob. Buddy, Rob. come on. Rob. Rob. Well, what were your answers? What were, what were your skills that were forced on y'all? I didn't have one. I think I think we we actually struggled on this. Yeah. One, which is okay. uh, upon reading it, it became clear. I think I might have remarked specifically. I wish Rob was here because I'm sure Rob has an answer to this. I think I said. Yeah, flute. but I mean, my, my... yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I, I certainly like that I can drive a drive a stick. Uh, that is that is one thing I was sort of forced to learn. Um, I can't like drive it while I'm rusty as hell, but I but I can do it, and I I still sometimes toy around with the idea of maybe I should buy a manual transmission car before you know the entire skill is mooted. Uh, by mm-hmm. by EVs. Uh, the but the one honestly here's the funny thing: the thing that is probably the most useful that like came in most handy and was most impressive to other people was the sheer amount of housekeeping like skills I learned just like from being given tons of chores growing up. Uh, like I did, I like, I did a ton of like keeping our house clean and such. And one of the jobs that like was offloaded to me was like cleaning bathrooms, which sucks. But if you can like clean a bathroom really, really well, it is a nice thing to be able to do. Uh, and it is one of those things where like, not being not finding it like too involved or 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 too off-putting is is just it is it is a decent thing to to sort of be able to just be like yeah this is no problem i'll just get in here and do this and i I do remember uh it also seemed to and this this sort of like i was taken aback by this but in retrospect it shouldn't have surprised me i was always surprised by how attractive uh like potential girlfriends found that that i had like no hesitation to just like roll up my sleeves and be like, yeah, like I'll, I'll do all sorts of housework shit. Uh, because it, like, I didn't realize that a lot of dudes just didn't pick up those skills or were like, I don't do that. I don't know how to do that. It's gross. It's, it's annoying, etc. Uh, and, and so I like, I, I remember, uh, like, you know, the, this, this one time where, uh, you know, a friend is coming over to visit, uh, and he brought his girlfriend along and I was like, well, I can't hang out right now. I'm, you know, cleaning the bathrooms. I'll be with you shortly, but make yourselves comfortable. And immediately it was like, oh, wow. So he has no problem like doing oh. that kind of work, but you, but you, uh, you think all this is beneath you. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I've set something off here. Um, but it was, it was, it was very funny. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a hundred percent. Like he came from a house where there was much more of a like bullshit, like 
macho values in some ways. And the fact that I wasn't encumbered by any of that baggage immediately just like put my stock through the roof. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that that's probably the one that comes in the most handy uh, is just the ability to like sort of look around and be like, OK, I can I can always like fix this place up if need be in terms of like just keeping it orderly. But the thing I do, I, I really wish I had paid more attention when I was working with my uncle um, as a contractor. Like mm-hmm. you, I never got above. I never got above the gopher level. Like I hung so much drywall. And I dug so many post post holes and like I did a ton of stuff and I can't remember any of the technique. <laughs> All are like, yeah. you're like, Hey, what, what's hanging drywall? Like, uh, I don't know. There's the part where you like move 500 pounds of sheetrock for an entire fucking day, uh, <laughs> out, of a, out of a truck and into a building. Uh, there's the part where you like hold something like perfectly braced for like five minutes while like things are, while it's affixed. Uh, but in terms of like, how did he do any of the stuff? I did it. I just don't remember. I, I don't remember how. So, uh, that tends to, that tends to haunt me. Cause, oh, if I could, if I could do a little bit of that, uh, life could be, life could be really, really sweet. Uh, uh before, we'll, before, before yeah. we get out of here, I do want to continue yes. on. So in an early, a podcast that you were not on, we, mm-hmm. uh, unleashed a box, uh, a Pandora's box of people admitting different words that they've said in words they thought they knew how to say clearly didn't and then found themselves in compromised situations upon uh discovery uh by others that they did and and the answer you know the 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 one I gave was saying uh uh <laughs> nim when I meant pseudonym in front of a bunch of people <laughs> when I was like 14 and we've got continue to get very good ones coming in from people um this one comes in from Jerry Hayway pointers I spent many a moon pronouncing words incorrectly, having read and learned to spell them ages before I heard them aloud. But I think the most devastating one for me was Chipotle. A group of friends wanted to grab something quick, but not fast food. And I suggested the new chain that had just opened up. Chipotle. Can you tell I learned how to spell phonetically? However, thanks to WKRP in Cincinnati. (laughs) I knew from a young age that... Chihuahua was not pronounced Chihuahua. As a final <laughs> note, words that I'm just never ever going to learn how to spell: biscuit and embarrassing. Also, I get mortgage right every time, but every time it looks wrong to me. Fuck capitalism. Fuck fuck turfs. Be queer. Do crimes. Best Jerry. That's a very good sign off. <laughs> um, Rob, are there are there any words? So there were two, two uh, uh, things that came up. One, have you been in an instance where confronted? With a word that you thought you knew how to say, you clearly didn't, and then were compromised as a result. Oh yeah, um, the, or the, the, I've got one that haunts me. Yep. Okay, <laughs> please hit me. Uh, I knew the word well. I knew what it meant. I just never had cause to hear anyone say it until it was time for formals uh, in high school. Lapel. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Mm. What did you? What did you? What did you say? Lapel. Label. Label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet that's understandable, yeah. I think. I, I, can, I can see. But it's 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 like uh you know, like the persuader thing is one that when I li- when I think about it, when I talk about it, I go back to that shelled embarrassing state of when <laughs> what was the context in what you said it? How did were you, were you looked at upon or are you just haunted because you wish you had known how to say it? No, I think 
So it was um, during like photos, mm-hmm. bigger people. And like I had called out, I was like, no, 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 we need to get, we need to get like a, one of those little like roses uh, through, through your label. <laughs> and everyone like, and it was just like, <laughs> you know how like raccoons or kittens will swivel their head at once when there's a new <laughs> stimulus. It was like the entire, the entire party we were going to the dance with just like, Vroom. Oh, what's this? Excuse and me. I'm like, uh Oh, and then of course it's hilarious. That I don't know what I did. And so it turns into five minutes of like razzing before I even get to like it's lapel. And I'm like, oh, fuck. But to be fair, in my defense, if it's lapel, mm-hmm. then it should be E-L-L-E. What the fuck? Yeah, English language. English, this, I mean, a lot of this is English. La- some, some of this is truly embarrassing mistakes. Others are just discovering the English language is a nightmare. This, uh, this is another really good one uh, from Fenn. Hi, all. Another story of learning how to say a word wrong, but this one with a twist. Parental reinforcement. For as far back as I can remember, until a fateful incident in school, I said the word hotel as hotowell. Yes, I said motowell, too. My parents said it that way, and I'm the oldest, so my brother learned it from me. This went on just fine until fifth grade when I was reading aloud, and the passage contained the word. I said... Hotowell, of course, and everyone, including the teacher, <laughs> laughed at me. Turns out I said the word uh, that way as a baby learning how to speak, and it was so cute my parents oh. didn't correct me. They began copying my pronunciation whenever they spoke to me, no. so I never realized it. It was <laughs> pure idiolect. Now, neither pronunciation sounds right to me, and every time I, I say the word, I wish I could say Hotowell. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment, fans. <laughs> I mean, that does happen um, where kids fixate on, on, a, on a thing and give it a label. And then, you know, uh, like my kids, um, how they've just like have both stumbled upon calling iPads different things for a very long time. Like my uh, one of the first videos that my oldest uh, watched uh, on anything was this Ryan's toy review, which is well, probably not a young kid anymore. He's probably a little older now, but. It was like it's, just it's a good bit that he's gonna keep going. It he's gonna be like thirty, and there's still gonna be like <laughs> Ryan's toy review. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can just lean into the nostalgia part of it. Um, I think he's like a teenager now, but uh, it was just him opening up toys and reviewing them as a six year old or whatever. And so my 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 uh, my oldest would at, when she wanted to watch a video, be like, "Can I watch Ryan?" And eventually, like, it was cute for a while, and it's like you're four, like it's an i like it's an iPad or a tablet. And she's like. You just watch Ryan on it. And then my youngest, uh, oh, what does she call it? Um, oh, she calls it her doo-doo because one of the, fir- the first videos she watched was Baby Shark. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And then she just internalized, like, oh, when I want to watch videos, I want to watch doo-doo. And she's now old enough to know she'll call it an iPad. But if she's, like, upset, she's like, I want doo-doo. doo-doo. So I can see how parents can go down a... A dark road well, of a dark Hodowell road. <laughs> <But> this, <laughs> well, this, this is this one is, is particularly galling. 
My parents had to break themselves this habit because the problem is it is like one of the cutest things your kid can do. Yes. It's like they have their own little word for a thing. Mm-hmm. And like it is really hard as a parent because I don't because I, I know I, I saw my parents like struggle with this and I saw my my sister struggle with it with the with the kids like trying to be like, OK, we should like we do have to help guide them around to like the actual thing. <laughs> but like, my God, this little like malapropism is is absolutely adorable. Um, it's the same deal. Like, you know, when. You know, when we were doing early stages of dog training, one of the first things that we were warned about is like a lot of behaviors are cute in a little puppy and are a major fucking problem uh, in the adult <laughs> dog if they've been consistently rewarded uh, with like positive feedback and attention uh, for, for this thing. And yeah, that seems like that. Oh, you just have to harden your heart and yeah, correct let's... away some of the cutest things. It's the same. They, I remember that one of the first times we met with our pediatrician as our, you know, when our, our kids were approaching when they, it's six months, they can start eating basic solids. And he was just like, look, do not make food. Don't like the, here comes the airplane. Like, right. don't do that. Don't do it. Don't start it. Don't make it a habit because what you're going to do is the same sort of puppy thing is like, you're going to have kids who then only want to eat when it gets turned into a game and you are going to hate yourself. So just <laughs> feed them the food and don't make it an airplane coming in for a landing. <laughs> yeah, that that I was that's the other thing that sort of stuns me is like the amount of stuff that is still out there is like this is how you raise a child that is just like apparently just straight up wrong. And that I happens, had no that idea every that happens like every t- like even in between like our two kids only separated yeah. by four and a half years or about four years. There were things that were like re- like as you're rereading up, it's like, oh, that kills them now. Oh, don't do that anymore. Well, so it's like it's only been four years. There is like that industrial complex of like it's but like the diet industrial complex where it's like, here's the new thing now. You have, there always has to be some new revelation, new like thing you mm-hmm. have to know about a thing. Uh, even though the science doesn't necessarily progress at that pace or things are not that unequivocal, but like, yeah, the, the airplane stuff is one that I was sort of shocked at like, Oh no, this is pretty well, like this is pretty well like cemented that, uh, this is not going to form healthy or easy eating habits, uh, down the road, even though mm-hmm. like, it's so you know. fun. <laughs> it's it's fun. And people have been like taught for decades that this is how you like, you know, handle a kid in a high chair. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that that stuff is is always so surprising to me. Uh, anyway, I think we need to we need to bounce unless you got unless you got one more mispronunciation. No, we're good. To. We're good. There's 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 other ones. We'll we'll continue down this road. Feel free to keep keep writing in with your 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 own embarrassing uh, mispronunciations. All right. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. If you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Waypoint, Facebook and YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Kato, where can people follow you? On Twitter at A underscore Kato underscore appears. Patrick. At Patrick Kulpik. Ren. At Ren or Raven. Uh, you can also check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. And, of course, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been able to have a bunch of fun and exciting streams lately. We've, we've been doing more streams uh, than usual uh, because of the the sale. Uh, we have we I think by the time you are hearing this, we will have finished the quarry. 
Uh, so you can check out the, the, the VODs for, for all of that. Uh, you know, Kato and I also had a really special <laughs> and memorable and eventful day of Motorsport Manager. Uh, people are talking about it. Uh, there are some tapes there are, are being some reviewed. <laughs> tapes are being reviewed. I am, I, I will say, on air when we were live, I definitely kind of threw Kato under the bus a little bit as if like, Kato, how could you? When I went and watched the tape, I am heavily implicated in the math error that led to a truly disastrous and season derailing. Like, I was like, okay, I must have just been checked out. I just wasn't paying close enough attention. No, I do math. I say things, uh, things that are wrong. And so I don't know I, what I don't I know what to. did it to us that we don't trust the UI in this game anymore. But it actually tells you these things, and we just I need know. to trust it. I know we just need to trust the game. I know <laughs> we need to trust the game. Uh, and yeah, and I think the plan is uh, again the day this episode drops. I think we're gonna be doing a little more golf, right? Maybe a little. A little dangerous um, golf, some yeah, outlaw golf. golf, maybe a little, a little. Ooh, outlaws. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, let's get let's get tasteful uh, in here. Uh, <laughs> if that sounds good, or you just want more Waypoint, you go to go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to go beyond that and show zeal for Waypoint, go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we are calling time on this Tuesday. We will talk to you again on Friday. Till then, fuck capitalism. Go home. And if you still have time, if it's, it's before 8 p.m. Eastern, go and take advantage of the Waypoint holiday sale. That's waypointplus.com. And the code is WayHoliday on checkout for your annual order. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.